Can we have roll? Bill Goggins. Here. John Kapler. Here. Kristen Lovelady Dixon. Here. Betsy Pringle. Here. Larry Totally. Here. Rick Whitney. Here. And Ruth Wright. Here. Thanks. So for tonight's meeting, we have um, council member reports and comments, requests from the audience, under new business or unfinished business, we'll be uh, reviewing the tree code uh, and taking final action on that. And then under new business, uh, autonomous personal delivery devices, followed by administrative reports, including La Quinta permanent supportive housing and Houghton Park and Ride update. That's our agenda <clears throat> for tonight. Um, I've got several things to mention under council member reports and comments, but I'm going to give you all an opportunity first if you have anything you would like to bring to the attention of the good of the order. Anybody? All right. I um, want to uh, let you know that Jeremy has uh, informed John and me that um, the city attorney and the planning staff are still working on the topic of how things are going to transition as far as all the regulations and everything to do with Houghton Community Council. And, and that is going to be presented. They're, they're going to put together uh, recommendations for a city council meeting on May 17th, but nothing new to report on that topic as of tonight's meeting. So we'll be able to um, review the, the uh, discussion uh, at, at our May meeting. Jeremy, is that about all there is to say on that? That's right. I think um, we'll still be working with the city attorney between now and then just to kind of understand what the legal options are. Right. And then we'll have a range of just different ways, if there are choices, of how council might approach it. Okay. Um, and then we've got... Uh, Live meetings are tentatively, we're shooting to have them for boards and commissions effective by June. So in a perfect world, our final meeting will be a live meeting, which would be appropriate. And um, that's uh, also gonna be our opportunity. I think we'll, I, I think that would work out really well for us to kind of have our uh, farewell messages to our constituents and to our and to the city council and, uh, and anybody else that, want, that we want to uh, speak to, um, as well as having any kind of an event for ourselves. So um, that, I think, is something that we'll discuss in detail uh, at our May meeting when we know for sure what, what our format's going to be. And um, in addition to that, John and I are going to be meeting with uh, Mayor Sweet and Deputy Mayor Arnold Thursday. And um, I don't know exactly what they're going to want to discuss, but I'm sure that this will be part of it is the transition and, uh, and the farewell to Houghton Community Council. Um, so that's, that's what I'm hoping for that. Uh, I think, John, is there anything else that we had talked about? I don't, I do, Jeremy, I do have one question. Uh, you, you, your message said that, that the hybrid format is a requirement. 
for uh, having, if you're going to go to live meetings, it's got to be hybrid. Is that a state law or what, what is the requirement there? This is secondhand, but my understanding is under the current um, state orders, if you have an in-person meeting, you have to provide the opportunity for people to participate remotely. Okay. All right. So be it. So th those are my uh, comments and reports. I see Larry's hand up. Larry. Uh, as you brought up the uh, June meeting, which would be our last one, uh, I think as uh, Jeremy or others are working through that, whatever action we take there, how would we approve minutes? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get another meeting out. I, I would say it's probably not relevant anymore. Well, no, I, I don't think that's the case. As a, as a legal entity that has been wound down, but we, we need to shepherd our, our minutes appropriately. And one of the things under new business that Rick and I talked about that we were just going to bring up was uh, a timeline of when our city accounts should be active. How long should those be active as well, Jeremy? That's something else. I mean, e even though it might not be relevant and processes moving forward and stuff in terms of bookkeeping and uh, uh, for what was done, I, I do think it's important that we improve the minutes so that we probably should come up with a way to do that. Um, you know, just some sort of email back and forth or something. Well, that would be a violation of the Open Public Meeting Act. So you're kind of in a quandary on that. If you have, a, if you all have questions about any of that, um, I'd say feel free to email me. There's there are things that we can include in the kind of memo and consideration with city attorney about topics like this. So feel free to email me with any questions like that and I'll pass those on to Kevin. Would it be possible to just do it at the conclusion of the meeting? Just let's well, review minutes. You could, but that is like that would be if somebody's typing them up and maybe it's general enough that we could type them up on the fly and share a screen at the end of the meeting. I'm sure we can figure out a way to work with that. Okay. Jeremy, uh, as far as um, the staffs, uh, it, it, who's going to be leading the process on the, these transition uh, decisions on, on how to make, is, is this largely being the city attorney or is it going to be planning staff that's going to be driving it or what's- Right now, right now it's uh, Adam, myself and the city attorney who will be kind of thinking about what the approach, what the legal options are, what the approach should be, recommendations to council to get guidance on that. And we'll feed that back to you at your next meeting. Um, in terms of actual future code amendments, that's probably somebody on my team, maybe Nick would take the lead on doing actual code amendments um, to look at um, parts of the zoning code and municipal code that need to be amended. Okay. Are you, are you interested in having anybody from the Houghton Community Council assist in this process or at least have a voice in it? I think um, I would encourage, like you, you might want to think about, it's, it's a good question. You might want to think about attending the city council meeting and um, weighing in at that point. I think after we um, have kind of understand what the range of options are, it's something you might want to think about for the for the next agenda. We can add that to the docket. Maybe Houghton yeah. has a specific recommendation on it. Yeah. Yeah. So we can do that. Okay. Great. All right. 
Uh, do we have uh, any members of our audience who would care to uh, address us at this time? As usual, Jeremy, I'm relying on you to manage this process. I see. Uh, Margaret Bull has her hand up. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm interested in the autonomous delivery vehicles. Um, I feel they're inappropriate in Kirkland. Um, I know people have seen them um, being practiced with in uh, sort of North Kirkland area. And they've seen people have to walk out in the street with their strollers and their little kids and their dog because the vehicles have been on the sidewalk. Um, I feel in Houghton, uh, you have so many driveways that come out onto 108 that are sort of hidden by hedges and so forth, that if a vehicle has to, a delivery vehicle backs up to get out of the way of a wheelchair or something, it might be backing up enough to be in a driveway where someone's trying to back out that's just kind of hidden from the vehicle. And I wouldn't want to back up and then have to worry about a small little vehicle stuck behind my car. Um, they're not as helpful to handicapped people as one might think, not just because they're on the driveway, but because it's like um, uh, Amazon locker on wheels. You have to come out to the street, put in a code to get out what you want. So a lot of us have stairs to our houses. So it's not like in other parts of the country where they're using them where it's a more flat city with more connecting sidewalks. We have a lot of unconnecting sidewalks here. We have a lot of hills here. Um, I feel um, they are so potentially dangerous and inconvenient for the citizens of Houghton anyway um, to be walking around with something taking up the sidewalk. If you walk down 108th, I have my favorite complaints about how the city lets people have hedges that hang into the walkway. Um, you can't walk too abreast, so you have to walk in soggy grass or get whacked in the face. And I can't imagine having one more thing cluttering up the sidewalk, um, especially since not every area is well lit, um, that um, you can't move, you can't get around it easily. I think uh, then you worry about people breaking into them and getting drugs out of them or whatever, or all the problems of the stolen. And then somebody has to sit in a truck somewhere with their, their tablet, minding what all these things are doing. And I, I just think that's kind of weird to have someone sitting around in your neighborhood looking at his tablet all day following up on what these little vehicles are doing. And then you'd have to wait if you're stuck on the sidewalk for them to move one that has stopped functioning. So I just see a continual problem with allowing a trial of this um, to go on um, when in fact it seems so inappropriate for our area. So I hope um, the city really puts the brakes on and doesn't let a big business um, force us to take on one more burden besides 
you know, places that have electric scooters laying around on the sidewalk, et cetera, that have already been allowed in some of the local cities. Um, so I wanna preserve our sidewalk space and make things as safe as possible for pedestrians and people with strollers and people in wheelchairs and people with pets. I just think we're going the wrong direction by letting a big company decide to use these small vehicles in our neighborhood. Thank you very much. Thank you, Margaret. And for the record, now we uh, we all know Margaret. You're you're a frequent contributor to our, our discourse, but I want to make sure that we have on record that this is Margaret Cole. And your your address, Margaret, is what? Margaret. I didn't think I had to announce my. Address. Don't we? Don't Jer Jeremy? Have we not had? No. Okay. I guess we don't have to announce. I live in Houghton. Let's just put it. That's that way. good enough. And and Margaret, I also want to commend you for your um, activism in uh, getting the proper grass installed along 108 for the maintenance of the of the medians. That was quite well done. Yeah, so. I haven't really noticed that that's actually what's happened, even though they said so. So we'll have to wait till the summer comes <laughs> and see what kind of grass is actually growing in the strip, if it's appropriate or not. Well, kudos for you for at least bringing it, bringing it up. So, okay. Hey. Who else do we have, Jeremy? Stuart Early. Okay. Stuart, we need you to unmute. Okay, unmuted, sorry. Can you hear me? We can now. Okay, so I'm, you know, I tend to agree that this is not the vision, um, but should we go forward with it? It seems to me that there are a couple things that need to be considered. One, Danny Westneat uh, had an interesting op-ed piece in the Sunday paper about 40 empty tiny houses that have been finished and sent, sent empty for quite a while. And the funding of the operating costs seems to be the issue. Who picks up the cost? and how much, and is the budget appropriate? Uh, do we have too much, too little? So there's, there's, a, there's another dimension to this that I don't think has been that much, and that is over the next five, 10, 15 years, to what extent can we count on politicians who are jockeying for position and, and support from the community, can we count on them to fund the operating costs effectively? Uh, um, I think, History would say that we're going to have some issues there, and there will be years where the business, the the center will have to cut back, and that will be a shame. But and they won't be able to deliver the service to the residents that they hope to be able to deliver. So that's a major issue. I don't know how you deal with that, other than setting aside a certain amount of money, like the Social Security sets aside a certain amount of money. I don't think that politicians would be willing to do that. So there's a trust factor there. And that's a question in my mind as to whether that's a, a prudent, um, a prudent decision to and, and and trust to make. I guess the second thing I would say is that it seems to me that we need to talk about the success metrics, both from the point of view of the operator and the residents, uh, their ability to actually improve their health, and and move on. I guess that's that would be one measure of performance. Um, but there would be several other measures of performance. Um, and then there, I think there's also measures of performance from the point of view of the, of the organization itself, its cost, uh, the cost it imposes on 
on, on um, Kirkland, um, 911 calls, uh, EMT calls, uh, those kinds of things. Um, and then I think there are also costs on the community. Um, to what extent are neighbors impacted by the existence and operation of this, of this center, of this, this shelter? Um, are there changes in uh, the school registration and population? Are there changes in um, in the in the turnover and and, and evaluation and the days on market of of of, uh, of, the, of the houses in the area? I, there, I'm not proposing anything specific, but I do think that some thought needs to be given to it. And whatever the performance metrics are, they should be two both sides, both from the point of view of the King County and their their aspirations for this this uh, shelter and how much good it'll bring, but also from the point of view of the residents in the community and what the costs will be and maybe what the positives will be. I don't know. I mean, they'll, I think the aspiration is that the, the people that, that take advantage of the shelter will end up using some of the community services. And so that to me means they'll go up to the community center, they'll use the the, the pool in the summer, they'll walk around the, the beaches, they'll use the waterfront, they'll They'll do a lot of they'll do a lot of things that we all enjoy. Okay, I would expect them to take advantage of that. They'll walk up to the shop. They'll go to get coffee at perhaps at Caroline Point, um, or do something there. I don't know. So I think the the success metrics ought to reflect both the residents and the, and the county and and what they're hoping to achieve, as well as the neighbors and what what the performance is and the costs are. Um, it seems to me that once you have that kind of a, a dashboard, it should be online so that everybody can see it. And it should be the center for a discussion, not only with the, the, the city of Kirkland and its representative following this, this uh, activity, but there should be people from the schools and representing the affected neighbors who perhaps get together every quarter or every six months look at the dashboard and talk about how it's going and what we're doing to improve. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Stuart. Excellent comments. We appreciate your input. I have a follow-up question if I may. Oh, yeah, please, John. Um, Mr. Early, uh, if you're still there. Yep, I am. You mentioned at the beginning of your conversation about 40 tiny unused. Yeah, so I can send you that Westlink Abed piece. Um, it's Jan April 23rd, Seattle Times. Title is, it's a feud. Brand new homeless shelter sits empty as leaders squabble. Okay. And it concerns me because I think there are different, where there's a lot of polarization around here. We're in the process of trying to find common ground and find some kind of center. Progressives, moderates, and, and this would be a potentially a budget item that people could use to express their political values and therefore maybe not get agreement. And you follow what I'm driving at? Yeah, absolutely. So April 23rd in Seattle Times. It is, and it was updated uh, April 23rd at 7.36. And I have it on a PDF file. I can easily send it to somebody if it's helpful to you. If you would not mind forwarding- I'd be glad to do that. Houghton Community Council, um, okay. follow our link and forward that. That would that would be awesome. Thank you very much.
Okay, I'll do that. Thank you. Do we have any other members of the audience? Who oh, care Betsy. to speak? <clears throat> Betsy has her hand up. Not Betsy okay. Pringle. Right. Oh, this is Betsy. Betsy, what's your last name? Lewis. Betsy Lewis. Okay. L-E-W-I-S. Excellent. We're, we're waiting. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> please okay. do. Uh, well, briefly, I, I just, I want to express my appreciation for the work of the Houghton Community Council. Uh, the times I have uh, contacted you, I've been very pleased with your responsive your thoughtfulness, um, and your interests uh, in issues that um, I and my neighbors bring to you. I'll be, I, I'm, I'm very so sorry to see the, uh, the council disbanded because I think you were a really good example of direct democracy in action. So thanks for your work. Thank you, Betsy. We appreciate that. Thank you. Are we, do you have any other? That's everybody. Okay. Thank you all. So with that, we will move into our um, discussion of the tree code. Jeremy, it looks like you're in charge of this. Yeah, Katie uh, Hogan, who you met at your meeting a couple meetings ago, is our acting urban forester um, filling in for Deb after her departure. And she will walk you through the amendments and talk to you specifically about how they reflect the direction um, from Houghton Community Council and your recommendation to the Planning Commission. Okay, hi. Yeah, good evening, everyone. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, it's nice to see everyone again. And as Jeremy mentioned, we are here tonight to provide some additional information related to the recently adopted tree code. Um, so this will, the agenda for the evening will pretty closely follow the staff memo that was provided in the council packet. Uh, this includes a brief background of the involvement of the amendments to Chapter 95, as well as a review of the guiding principles that were previously stated by Houghton Community Council. We'll also review recommendations that Houghton Community Council delivered to the Planning Commission and compare those to the adopted tree code. And finally, there'll be plenty of time for community uh, council members to discuss and ask clarifying questions prior to considering resolution 2022-4 uh, to approve the adopted ordinance within the Houghton jurisdiction. And I have a couple screens up here, so um, I may not see hands going up, um, but I certainly uh, invite you to chime in, you know, throughout the presentation if you have questions or comments. Um, maybe Jeremy, if you wouldn't mind helping me keep track of, of any hands in the air. Okay, so getting into the background, I, I, I know we went over this a little bit at our past meeting, um, but just the development of the overall tree code amendments, this process started back in June of 2018 with collaboration from the Planning Commission, Houghton Community Council, and other stakeholders. And then over the next several months, there were four different iterations of the draft code. The, uh, these were created to help kind of identify those key issues with the existing tree code and identify goals of creating a new code. So leading up to the COVID hiatus between February 2020 and May of 2021, there were over 20 um, official meetings to discuss and workshop the tree code, including a public hearing. 
And then after the hiatus, uh, last May of 2021, Council resumed diligent review of the amendments and continued to help guide staff toward the desired outcomes of the new tree code. And then on this past March 15th, of 2022, Council did vote to adopt Ordinance 4786, which replaced the existing tree code. And the effective date for this is May 13th, so Friday, May 13th of 2022. And that is 60 days following the date of adoption on March 15th by City Council. Okay, so um, early on in the amendment process, Houghton, in collaboration with the Planning Commission, developed the following guiding principles for amending Chapter 95. Um, so I just wanted to go over those here, um, just to kind of refresh memory. And uh, those, those goals were to strive to achieve a healthy, resilient urban forest, meeting 40% canopy cover, to strive for an objective process with predictable outcomes, to consider homeowner preferences for sunlight to generate solar energy, as well as to preserve views. And to allow modifications to propose building plans that would retain trees, but that would not result in unreasonable negative impact to property owners. Um, and then finally, to promote simplicity and just make the code easier to implement overall. So these principles, these guided the recommendations that um, were provided by you, and we will go over these next. Um, and on December 14th of 2019, Houghton Community Council did deliver uh, a list of recommendations to the Planning Commission for consideration in the tree code amendments. So as we run through these, um, some of them I'll go over fairly quickly as they're kind of more administrative, um, while others are more substantive. So as I mentioned earlier, feel free to chime in at any moment if you would like more of an explanation on any of the, the uh, recommendations that we go over tonight. So jumping into recommendations, um, several amendments were recommended to the definition section. This is KZC 95.10. Um, all of these have been incorporated into the adopted tree code. Uh, and just kind of briefly, these included uh, clarifying how to calculate DBH for multi-stem trees, including only allowing uh, or regulating individual stems over three inches diameter in that multi-stem calculation, included providing a, kind of a really distinct clarification between hedge trees and grove trees, just to make sure that hedges uh, or rather that grove trees could not be considered hedges and be cut down through that new hedge tree regulation in the code. Um, so there was some clarification added to both of these definitions to make sure that intent is very, very clear and there's no um, overlap there. Are there any questions about these kind of three recommendations here before you move on to some more substantive? Yeah, John, I see your hand up. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I really don't have many questions. This is just one of them. On the first, with regard to multiple STEM uh, trees, I see that the definition is written that should one of the stems have been removed, um, that the size of that removed stem or stump um, will be counted at the diameter at the top of the stump instead of breast level. So the question would be, if we have a multi-stemmed uh, multi tree of three stems, one of the stems is cut down at a couple of feet high, is that gonna to count towards tree credits as well? 
So the kind of the way that it works right now, and I think this kind of ties into code enforcement, um, where if a tree was removed, but we don't know what the diameter of that trunk was, um, you know, because that size of the trunk directly correlates to the fees that would be or the fines that would be applied through code enforcement. The, the current methodology that the city uses is that we would take the kind of the cross section of where that tree was cut, and that would be the diameter that we would go off of for assessing fines, unless we had other information, say a report or something of that nature that gave us the actual DBH of that tree. Um, so I do know that there has been um, some talk about amending that and, you know, that would go through chapter one of the code enforcement code um, and, and would, would reflect um, kind of a standardized taper percentage for determining what those fines would be. Um, but that is still very much in the works and is, is currently. Yeah, so I, I can appreciate that. My question is not in regards to fines or remove trees that have been done illegally or anything like that. It has to do with the pure definition of breast height for multi-stem trees. And it clearly states if, if a stem is cut off, you count it up to the stump. And I'm thinking, are we really going to give tree credits for stumps? That's the question. Because this says no, yeah, okay, I see. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, if that's what it's meant, okay, but it, it's and it's a question. It's purely yeah. that's I don't. That's not the intent of of that inclusion into the DBH definition. Um, if a stump was, let's say, cut on a site that was slated for development, um, and it was cut at the base or below four and a half feet above grade, which is DBH, then it would, it would not count toward any credits for that property because that tree, you know, even if it were deciduous and could eventually re-sprout, um, you know, the structural issues involved with that would be pretty substantial to make it not a good long-term tree for that property. So um, the intent of that, inc that inclusion into DBH was specifically related to code enforcement and not, um, you know, counting trees toward tree density credits. Okay. Um, and then the last question I had about uh, counting hedges is hedges, not as groves. Um, in my reading of this, it just, it, it, um, it seems a little clumsier than it could. I, I just don't think it's clear. It, and I don't want to get off on the weeds on that. I just, uh, it, uh, so anyway, I'm just going to stop. You continue on. Okay. Okay. Thanks, John. Any other comments or questions before we move on? Okay. Um, oh, so next we are moving on to chapter 9525, section 9525. So this was previously 9523, if you're very intimately familiar with the um, previous tree code. It, and that regulates private property tree removals that are specifically not associated with development activity. So this would be your homeowner tree removals um, that are do not have any development permits in with the city. So the first recommendation stated, um, and, and this, this is a big one, um, stated to not entirely prohibit the removal of landmark trees. And um, Houghton Community Council also noted that if landmark trees were completely prohibited from removal, that this may be a cause to exercise your disapproval jurisdiction. 
So the adopted tree code does not prohibit the removal of landmark trees. Um, it, does it does limit their removal to one tree per every 12 months. So city council expressed the desire to, on top of that one tree per 12 months, to actually increase homeowner flexibility of landmark tree removals. And so the adopted code also includes a banking option. And this would allow for one additional landmark tree removal within that same 12 month period, uh, as long as the trees are robustly mitigated for. Uh, and the homeowner that chooses to bank that additional tree, they would then be restricted from removing additional landmark trees for a total of 24 months period, 24 month period. So it's essentially, you know, borrowing your next 12 months removal um, to remove trees at the same time so that you, you know, if you have a project going on or you don't want to incur multiple, um, you know, work fees for companies removing trees, things of that nature. So um, I, I know that there were a lot of comments about landmark trees and, and those regulations. So I wanna give some time here to answer any questions about the specifics of this regulation in the adopted code or, or any comments that anyone has. Okay, I see Rick. Uh, <clears throat> where have we stated what we ended up with for, for the actual diameter of a landmark tree? Yeah, uh, great question. So that's in um, a couple, uh, a couple places. Probably the easiest place is ninety-five point one zero definitions, and it, I think it's I want to say ninety um, ninety-five point one zero seventeen subsection seventeen. I can pull it up here. That's page, yeah, page eighteen of the packet, Rick. Okay. Thank you, Jeremy. Landmark so, trees, and it's 26, 26 inches diameter. Yeah. Okay. And then on top of that, I, I one um, the other code section that we had discussed with you at the with Houghton at the last meeting was um, the new ninety five twenty three, which is specifically to landmark tree mitigation. So just as a reminder. That is a section that would apply citywide. So whether you're a homeowner, you're a developer, um, you would be required to submit a permit to remove a landmark tree. Um, you still can get your you know, landmark tree allowance though. So it doesn't need to meet the hazard or nuisance criteria. The intent of submitting a permit is that we can then as the city have the resources and staffing to follow up on mitigation. So you would be required three new mitigation trees for each landmark removed. Um, we are developing a specific list of species that need to be selected in order uh, for those mitigation trees. And um, there is also the fee and lieu option, which would be essentially $450 per mitigation tree. Um, so there's kind of those main components. It's the permit, the three to one mitigation from a, a particular list of species. Um, and then the option for fee and loof, there's no feasible space to replant on the subject property. And again, that's 95.23. That's the new 95.23. Okay, see later. Oh, yeah. There we go. Yeah. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I put you in charge and then I keep doing it. Sorry, Jeremy. <laughs> oh, hi, Larry. My question, or it's more of a comment, just to clarify. You can re remove the landmark tree as long as it's not one of the last two for the smaller lots or last three or four for larger lots. Is that correct? 
That is correct. So it's a, it's treated the same as kind of our current system, where across the board, it's two tree removals, no matter the property size for the, the old code. Um, and if you, but you still have to have two trees remaining on your property in order to qualify for those allowances. So that same logic is in the, the newly adopted code. So you can, you still have your allowances, which could include a landmark tree, one landmark tree, or, you know, however many um, regulated trees, depending on your number of allowances based on property size, but you do have to maintain that number of trees required to remain in order to qualify for the allowances. So it's same logic as the existing code, just increased um, removal allowances. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Okay, any other questions or comments on this um, landmark tree Rick, regulation? Yes. I do have questions. Um, the uh, three to one mitigation trees um, that you're uh, requiring for removal of a landmark tree, those are those trees given any special uh, protection status or are those trees subject to removal over time as, as any other trees would be? That is a very, very good question. Um, so the, the trees that would be required for mitigation with associated with a landmark tree removal, and, we're, and this isn't necessarily through a hazard or nuisance, this is just a healthy landmark, would be subject to any other permitting requirements. So um, any tree removal permit across the board would be subject to um, five-year maintenance. Okay. And what is the basis for determination? You, you, you use the term that you can, there can be a fee in lieu of the three to one mitigation if there is no feasible space to plant. Yeah. That, that's really subjective because people, you know, so are you saying that if I wanna have a garden and my garden is a space that conceivably could accommodate a tree, but then that would effectively um, make my garden just not functional. How, how, how is the determination made and what's feasible? That's a great question. Um, and so kind of the intent of including this fee in lieu was to, you know, allow homeowners the flexibility to manage their vegetation and properties, you know, how they, how they would like. However, because we you know, know that these large trees provide a lot of canopy cover and ecosystem services, um, we do want to see the permit submitted and then some um, conversation with the planner, the planning official reviewing that permit to determine whether there is that adequate space. So like any permit, tree removal permit that's submitted to the city, the development review arborist will review that permit, um, reach out to the applicant, do a site inspection, you know, discuss possible planting locations, kind of provide that as that service with the resident. And, you know, if there are instances where they there are, you know, plans to replant in the backyard, then um, they can certainly exercise that fee and lieu option. So um, there's, you know, in terms of available space, um, that could be, you know, the recommendations that are going to be on the landmark tree species list for mature canopy width. You know, if there isn't that available space, then then that would be a um, a reason to 
pursue the fee in lieu option. So this is going to be something that's going to be pretty much at the, it'll be subjectively determined by each individual planning person that is working on your individual permit request. So we do only have one um, city arborist that reviews tree permits uh, for private properties. So that is our development review arborist. So in terms of, you know, consistency, um, it, it isn't jumping around to a lot of different planners for tree related permits okay. for private property tree removals. All right. Okay, any other questions? And you can always come back to this if, if, if things come up later as well. Okay, so I'm gonna uh, move along here. Um, let's see here, where did I leave off? Okay, so the next uh, couple of recommendations do differ slightly from the adopted tree code. Um, Houghton had recommended that the current tree removal notification process, um, which is optional currently continue to be optional so as a reminder, this tree notification process is essentially where you submit a form to the city of Kirkland, a planner reviews the information, and then sends confirmation that you qualify for the tree removal allowances um, and do not need to go through the permit process. And that really helps residents avoid any code violations. Um, so city council did express a very strong desire when reviewing code amendments the last several months to better track tree removals occurring throughout the city. Um, so the adopted tree code does mandate this process, um, but it will continue to be uh, a free service for residents. Uh, the next recommendation was to only apply the development wait period to landmark sized trees. So just as a, a quick refresher, this regulation would allow the city to not accept development permits within either uh, within 12 months of a regulated healthy tree removal or 24 months of a healthy landmark tree removal. Um, and the purpose of this is to prevent preemptive tree removals to avoid subsequent development regulations. Um, and one of the key reasons for applying this regulation to both the standard regulated size of tree and the landmark tree is that in addition to, you know, these large landmark size trees um, that we know are, um, that we're really strongly trying to preserve on development sites, these younger trees are also ideal for retention. Uh, they typically can tolerate higher levels of disturbance and they'll be better, you know, they'll be good long-term trees adjacent to new development. Um, and city council did express strong desire to see this applied to both regulated and landmark trees. Um, before we move on to the next slide, I wanna uh, see if anyone would like to unpack or ask additional questions about any of those those subjects. John? Oh, you're muted. I just yeah. have a, a quick question about um, what the intent is in our packet versus the actual codified language. Um, uh, 12 month following, and I'm sorry, it's I put a check mark on this, but it's actually on another one. Never mind, sorry, never mind. Okay, all right. Well, we can come back to that. <laughs> Thank you. Any other? I see Rick, you're unmuted. Did you have a question? Okay, any other questions or comments on this? Okay. 
Um, so moving on to the next slide, uh, we're jumping over to section 95.30. Uh, this, this includes tree retention standards related to development activity. So any um, building permits submitted to the city of Kirkland would be subject to this uh, section of this chapter. So Houghton's first recommendation was regarding what at what level is a um, of redevelopment triggers a full tree plan review. And this recommendation was to only trigger this review with a 50% increase in the proposed footprint um, on the lot. And the adopted code does align with this recommendation and essentially I think word for word says what um, Houghton had recommended here. And the next recommendation was to include a specific guaranteed building footprint dimension that could be shifted around the lot to retain trees, but that would be guaranteed to the developer. This language was removed and instead de uh, development guarantees were added at the beginning of 9530. I believe it's under subsection two of this code. Um, we will go over these a little bit more later on, um, but um, yeah, so maybe hold on that until we get to the actual development guarantees. Any questions about the tree plan review and when that's triggered, um, or if you have development guarantee questions or building footprint dimension questions, feel free to bring those up as well. Okay, I see Larry. Yeah, on the tree plan review, uh, so the 50% increase in footprint does that include <clears throat> all, all buildings? So if you're going to build a detached ADU, uh, if that takes up 25% or 30% increase, and then you're also expanding the main, main house or uh, adding a garage or other type of uh, thing to that, or is that just on the... Uh, I'm trying to make sure understanding how ADUs fit into this whole process. Yeah, and we will talk about that a little bit. Um, ADUs was a very hot topic at city council. So that was included in the development guarantees um, in terms of calculating that 50%. Um, I might have Jeremy chime in on this, but um, since, uh, but my understanding is it would be, you know, total, um, for the lot in general and, and not just for an existing structure. That's, yeah, that's correct, Katie. Um, the, the issue that stemmed this recommendation from Houghton back when you looked at this was that it just talked about floor area before this. So like even if you're adding a second story, like you might be doubling the square footage, but you're not having any more site impact. And so the footprint size was a way to measure site dis measured against site disturbance rather than just the square footage. Yeah, that's kind of what I, I, I figured. And I just wanted to make sure we got clarification. Thanks. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Okay. Okay, so the next recommendation was for regarding tree retention requirements, specifically for tier two trees. Um, as a reminder, tier two trees, which is no longer term referenced in the adopted code, but referred to any trees located in required yards, common open spaces, or land use buffers. So these are essentially our existing high retention value trees. 
um, in the, the, the current code, um, as well as the proposed or the adopted code. And the recommendation was to create a 50 tree credit per acre cap to determine how many of these tier two trees must be retained. So it would essentially be this metric that a developer would have to go uh, demonstrate that they're meeting. And then after that point, they could remove any of these tier two trees that they wanted. Um, Houghton did note that not establishing this metric for retention of tier two trees may be a cost to exercise their disapproval jurisdiction. So just um, to kind of explain how the adopted tree code uh, works is it does prioritize the retention of any high retention value tree. Um, this would include trees that are in yards, common open spaces, or land use buffers, which were those tier two, as well as landmark trees and groves, which would be those previously uh, called tier one, uh, located anywhere on a site. So it at this point, then it requires applicants to pursue site plan alterations and variations to development standards to determine retention feasibility. Um, there are development guarantees that are written into the code as well um, that would help kind of decide whether retention is feasible. And the main reason for using this system is that it may not always be feasible to retain just landmark trees and groves, um, as those may be located central to the buildable area of the lot. They might require really big protection areas that just could not feasibly be um, retained and still build up to the guarantees for that property. Um, and due to this, there uh, these other trees, which are typically located along the perimeter of sites, uh, may be more feasible for retention and provide valuable buffering to adjacent neighbors. So the tree code kind of writes in, or it writes in, you know, ultimate or maximum protection for these these trees. Are there any questions about this regulation um, in the adopted code? I'm not seeing anything. Jeremy, are you seeing any hands up? Nope. Okay. Um, so I will move on, but if you have questions that come up later, please, please ask away. Uh, the next recommendation was to clarify that the intent of tree retention is not to decrease the allowed FAR and lot coverage. Um, so this is consistent with the adopted code. It specifically states under 95.30 subsection 2 that tree ret retention standards shall not preclude development guarantees. Um, some of these guarantees include density, lot coverage, FAR, and ADUs to answer your um, kind of tag along with your previous question, Larry. Um, so that kind of the full language of that can be found in 95.32. I saw John with the hand up there. Yeah. Yes, thank you. This this was my note that I was mixed up on before. Sorry about that. So the uh, question is with the sort of current conversation between the city council and staff and internal with staff regarding accessory dwelling units. Um, the sentence in our packet, which really is not duplicated that I could find in the code anywhere, uh, talks about specifically about the ADUs, about precluding the ability to construct ADUs consistent with uh, chapter 115. And so is there anything you can discuss in terms of 
I, I think a trial balloon that was floated long ago by city council that tree regulations would be relaxed should someone want to build an accessory dwelling unit on a home that's built in a backyard that was full of some sort of trees that did not meet the standards if they built the ADU, but because the city council wanted more accessory dwelling units that they would, they would study laxing the code for the installation of ADUs. Is the sentence in your packet alluding to that? Has there been discussion about that? Where, 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 where's the city on this kind of cramming ADUs in places that have been reserved for trees? Jeremy, I'm going to pass the torch to you on that one. That's more of a, a policy-driven yeah. question there. Yeah, John, the, I mean, the code is the, um, the code is what the code is, right? And so it's giving that as a guaranteed development, right? I think what, what the status that gives it is you have the right to build an ADU and the fact that there are trees on your site won't preclude it. But it doesn't mean, I'll take a simple example, if you have, if you could put the ADU on this side or this side of the house and it's equal, but this side has a landmark tree on it, then staff's going to probably ask you or expect you to build the ADU on the other side. So we know that life's never that simple, but that's the intent. Like you do get the ADU on the other hand, if you have two landmark trees in your backyard and you got to put the, you got to put the ADU one place or the other, the code's acknowledging that that landmark tree is going to be removed and the ADU is going to be built. So as long as you have, and I'm, I'm really asking this in the auspices of a developed piece of property where they then later want to insert an accessory dwelling unit or two accessory dwelling units, if they have coverage and FR, uh, FAR availability on the property, um, they just work with the tree code to work in and amongst and around or remove trees to the tree codes allowances for the accessory dwelling unit. It is not at this time modifying the tree code Correct. to allow for accessory dwelling units. That's right. Thank okay, you. very good. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, John. Okay, any other questions on that subject? Okay. Only a, a couple more slides here, getting to the end. <laughs> um, okay, so the next, uh, let's see where. Um, Okay, yeah, moving on to 95.32. Um, this is the tree protection during development. So it specifically applies to um, development permits that were submitted to the city that have a tree retention plan. Um, there were a few smaller kind of administrative uh, recommendations from Houghton Community Council that I'll briefly run through. Uh, the first one was to delete section 95.2, or sorry, 95.32 subsection one as it was already stated in the private tree removal section, which was KZC 95.23. A um, little confusing there because they are very similar <laughs> uh, sounding sections. But this amendment was not made as these two sections do completely regulate different types of uses. So one section refers specifically to private homeowner regulations, while the other is specific to development related tree standards. 
Um, the next is to provide a pre-approved standard sign, which the city does have available on our website. Um, and it is updated regularly. And the final recommendation was to replace the term uh, light soils. And this is specifically referring to when you're increasing the grade around retained trees. So you're adding fill soil to replace the term kind of this general light soils with more specific industry standard specification. Um, so this was amended to accomplish this and it does refer to the ANSI A300, I believe standard five, part five. Um, so you can find more information on this in the staff memo that was provided. Uh, Larry, I see a hand up from you there. Uh, yeah. So on the first bullet uh, or section up there on the tree protection, it says uh, sections 9523 and 9532 cover different regulations. Well, 9523 under the new code is land, landmark tree mitigation requirements. Yeah, uh, I was so, trying to not get this, uh, have this be overly confusing, but the new 9523 is now 9525. Okay. So I okay. left it 9523 in the presentation, but it's actually referring to 9525 in the adopted tree code. Okay, and then do you know what sub-bullet that one? is then referring to oh yeah uh, it, it may have changed around a little bit i had to do a little reconnaissance to compare to the planning commission draft and the current iteration of the tree code um but i believe it was referring to tree retention and tree retention standards um i can try to pull it up here if that would be helpful unless jeremy you have that planning commission draft in front of you i don't Sorry. Okay, no worries. Not sure how to get it up here without closing out of the presentation. Oh, here we go. Just a moment. Okay, so 95.23.7, I believe it was. Right. Might take me a moment to, to look this up. I can I can take a look and let you know by the end of the session. There was okay. a little bit of kind of, like I said, reconnaissance work to compare um, the drafts to each other. So yeah, just, apologies, I can't pull that up on the spot here. That's fine. Uh, I, I, I kind of searched, uh, I knew it kind of switched sections to 9525, but I still couldn't find the same type of uh, language. Wording as in 9532. So I'll take a look at that here in a moment. Um, okay. When we uh, kind of at the end of the presentation, I'll let you know. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. So moving on, just a, a couple more here. The next few recommendations are regarding supplemental tree planting requirements on sites undergoing development. Um, this was previously KZC 95.33. And it's now 95.34. Um, recommendations from Houghton included allowing native conifer trees to exceed the proposed 11 tree credit per uh, the 11 
credit per tree cap um, since they do qualify for one and a half times tree credits. And the adopted code does not include this recommendation as the intent is to encourage more robust replanting and um, restoration of sites that underwent development and allowing credits to um, allowing a large amount of credits for conifer trees would easily allow sites to exceed replanting requirements, um, even with minimal tree retention. So the intent here was to um, try to encourage and um, be able to enforce as much replanting as, as feasible on sites undergoing development. So any tree, regardless of species, would be capped at 11 credits. The next recommendation was to provide a native tree list, which would include both native and non-native conifers that receive that one and a half times tree credits. Um, City is currently working on this list and we'll have it posted online very shortly. And the next was to require a five-year maintenance agreement or a preservation agreement for trees that are planted off-site that could not be adequately planted on-site due to space constraints, um, rather than requiring them to be protected in perpetuity. And the adopted code does align with this recommendation and requires a five-year maintenance agreement for trees planted off, off location, off-site. Okay, see John with a hand up there. So uh, let, if I, I'm looking for the mechanics of this maintenance agreement, if we plant something off-site, um, and let's just say uh, we've designed a home for you, you've built a brand new home, you've done some mitigation offsite. If the property offsite happens to be city property and we're required to have a maintenance agreement on that, what sort of mechanism in terms of use easements, maintenance agreement, maintenance easements, those sorts of things would be in place. What happens if it's um, some sort of wetland area that's, I, I'm, I'm looking for uh, private property. What if it's private property? What if it's a park? What if it, what, what sort of agreements are in place that would allow you to go on someone else's property that you don't own and perform maintenance? Um, or is this that uh, the applicant pays the city to perform the maintenance? What, what are the mechanisms to be in place here? Yeah, that's a very great question. Um, the mitigation, the fee and loom mitigation fee of $450, which is explicitly stated in the code as $450, it is in, um, subject to maybe some increase over time due to cost of labor materials, all of that, um, is the amount that includes the cost to purchase, plan, and maintain a tree for that period of time, uh, which would be the city's responsibility. So that money would go directly to a the urban forestry account and would specifically only apply to tree planting off site um, or in on city property. And the city would be the ones maintaining and planting and installing um, that tree. So, so this preservation agreement is 100% solely limited to the financial arrangement set aside at the beginning of the project to pay for the installation of this tree. Once that's finished, your obligation as a homeowner is complete. Is that correct? Correct, yes, yeah. Okay, because I, I couldn't find in the code about maintenance agreements or, um, 
So okay. yeah, so and, it's, and it's Jeremy, feel free to chime in if there's. Okay. You're paying a fee, and the city then is responsible for the the maintenance portion of the agreement. Yes, and yeah, that that four hundred fifty dollars we assessed that fee by reaching out to the Parks Department, Public Works Department, Green Kirkland Partnership, um, other folks that are you know regularly and actively planting trees throughout the city, and determine that cost um, in order to you know cover their expenses for replanting trees and maintaining trees. So the the fee and lieu agreement between a property owner, a future property owner and the city um, would, that the details of exactly how that's going to look are still being worked out right now. We're working on updating our permitting system to be able to kind of document that within our permitting system online. Um, so whether or not that's a formal agreement, um, I, I think at this point we haven't officially decided. Jeremy, feel free to chime in if you had different discussions. Yeah. With, well, I think, yeah. John, the, the section that started this conversation is based on a concept that you could go work with an, another private property in Kirkland and plant your trees there. And honestly, I've never seen that happen. It's been there. It's been allowed in the tree code since its inception, but nobody's ever done it because there's some hassle factor to that, right? Like we've got those agreements and maintenance costs and all that. The intent of the fee and lieu is like, I think it really is one and done. If you chose to plant, if you chose to pay the fee and lieu instead of planting, then that becomes the city's obligation to plant those trees, to maintain those trees and the 450 insurance that we've got capacity to do that. What we hear from Green Kirkland Partnership and, and Parks is there's there's plenty of opportunities for tree plantings in the city um, with a robust program in place to make sure those trees are successful. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Okay. So um, the next section is KZC 95.44. This is specifically regarding internal parking lot landscaping requirements. And Houghton Community Council recommended developing some more robust parking lot landscaping requirements, um, you know, specifically to ensure that trees have more space to grow, um, have a more meaningful contribution to reducing heat island effect, um, so on and so forth. So to reflect this request, um, which there was also a strong request from city council for this as well, the section was revised pretty substantially to maximize improvements to ecosystem services, improve long-term uh, viability and survivability of trees and other plants that are planted in parking lots. Um, and these regulations would include um, kind of removing or dropping that standard kind of uniform style planting that we see in a lot of parking lots, um, which doesn't necessarily allow adequate adequate space for trees to grow or adequate absorption of stormwater. So it's allowing for some more creative design for how vegetation is planted in parking lots. Um, I know the city is seeing less and less open air parking lots as well. Um, so this this may not be utilized that that frequently, but if it is, it has been improved substantially. Okay, so uh, that does conclude the comparison of Houghton recommendations with the adopted tree code. Before opening the floor up for discussion, I just wanted to briefly go over kind of where we're at in this process right now. Um, we're currently working on updating a lot of internal documents. This includes website, um, using updating our 
our kind of permitting interface system that links with my building permit, uh, creating educational handouts for the public. Um, so a lot of changes happening internally right now. And then starting in the first week of May, we'll begin uh, our external outreach and education regarding the new tree code amendments leading up to the effective date of Friday, May 13th, 2022. Okay, so that uh, with that, we'd like to open the floor up for questions, comments, final remarks regarding consideration of the included resolution to approve the um, ordinance 047, sorry, yeah, 04786 within the Houghton Municipal Corporation. Thank you. Katie. Thank you. Yeah. Very, very good presentation. So, Thank you, Rick. Um, and I, it, did anybody have a question that didn't get addressed in Katie's presentation? I'm gonna, Katie, can you remove your screen now so that I can see everybody, see if their hands are up? Hello. I, there we go, good. Um, so I, yes, Bill. You have a question about the, um the landmark tree removal, the requirement for the three to one mitigation. The three to one mitigation, is that something new, Katie? That is, yes. So um, currently the um, removal of a healthy tree over 26 inches diameter that's removed under the allowances is not required for any mitigation. So this would, um, yeah, this is a, a new regulation entirely specifically for those 26 inch or greater trees. Okay, yeah, that, that's kind of a deal breaker for me because the ability to remove a tree on your property, um, I, I think is an innate, should be an innate right to any property owner. And the fact that you are now burdening, or not you, but this regulation burdens that property owner with having to do a three to one mitigation or spend $1,350 to try to get out of it if they have no suitable space. But if they do have suitable space, then it sounds like they can't even get out of it. They just have to plant three new trees, which could be quite expensive. It may be undesired for that property owner. So it's kind of a deal breaker for me. Any other, any other questions or comments, Bill? No. Okay. Anyone else, any specific questions or comments? Ruth, unmute yourself, please. Need you to unmute. Yeah, there we go. Sorry about that. Um, did anyone see the March 15th letter from Mike Smith at Merritt Homes? I always remember reading that. I printed it off because I was kind of concerned I remember the presentation from that working group. They did such a, with their little tree circles and all that is pretty amazing. But it looks like according to him that all that work got left behind um, in the last year. Um, he has a couple of questions or a couple of comments that I just wanted to read for the record because at this point the council's already put it into effect. But it says anytime a municipal staff person Venture, basically is what he's talking about is staff went ahead and is doing all the work now 
without really implementing or looking at the work that was done by the working group. That's what he's saying here. And what he's talking about is, so the staff is doing this. Um, the one thing was, sorry about that. Staff is telling council which solicited input from affected communities and successfully received that input that wholly ignoring those communities is council's desired outcome. So he's questioning the fact that is the staff, the, the council has a desired outcome. So is the staff trying to come up with the outcome without, has the outcome already been determined, I guess, and then staff work to come with for that outcome. And that's why it looks like, I mean, all these things about the working group, he mentions a lot of different things here that don't seem to be uh, <clears throat> addressed. And then one other comment, um, anytime a municipal staff person ventures into evaluations of impacts to the private sector without consulting anyone in the private sector, the findings should be considered dubious. From both the code and memo, it's quite clear that looking out for builders was omitted from the mission brief. So a lot of the fees and all of that apparently, I mean, it's the builders that have the ultimate uh, responsibility for paying the fees and all of that and it doesn't look like it's concerning that they since 2018 that working group put in all that time and then it was and apparently a lot of that was not considered they had a balanced approach so i'm just putting that on the record because i think that's important i think the builders are kind of left out there at this last uh, last runaround on this well, the sad thing about that is that it wasn't just the builders. It was a collaboration between Finn Hill uh, and the builders, and they put in a tremendous amount of time and effort to try to find middle ground. And then, but I don't know that I would blame it on staff. I think it was pretty much a direction of the city council. Right. <laughs> so. And that's why I read with that the, the, the desired outcome for city council. So then staff had to do obviously what council wanted. Yeah. They, it's, it, it seems that the city council chose to, to, to largely ignore many of the recommendations of the working groups. Okay, any other? Oh, I'm sorry, just a quick observation on that. I mean, it's, a, it's been a really long road, right? I think we all yeah. recognize that. There's been a ton of input coming in to you, to the planning commission, the city council, representing all perspectives. And I'm not sure there's anybody who said they love the whole thing um, that's a matter of whether or not you, you appreciate enough of it that it reflects Kirkland's values. I think that's been the struggle with city, for city council. And towards the end, if you if you have followed the, the process since the work of the working group before the planning, before your public hearing, um, it's difficult to say that the working group is still aligned on what they feel like the tree code should be. So mm -hmm. master builders and general neighborhood alliance the perspectives had varied over time. So it's not like this unified position that's carried through and council ignored it. Like they've continued to take feedback from a lot of different parts of the community. Okay. Thanks, Jeremy. Anyone else? Okay, I see Larry's hand up. Well, my comment's somewhat similar to that. It's basically because of the time. So the public hearing was uh, held on November 5th, 2019 with the Planning Commission, the Houghton Community Council. Recommendations came out of that, went to city council in early 
like January of 2020, and then the process got put on hold. And the version of the, the code that came back through uh, doesn't reflect anything, it is quite different than what was actually uh, presented to the public for uh, uh, the public hearing. At least my, my read uh, looked through it. Uh, so I really wish the process would have included another public hearing uh, for the city council to get back up on it. It's mentioned in their uh, uh, May uh, 2021 meeting as the public that there was a public meeting and this went through, but that was about the end of that. The rest just started jumping into, should this be simpler? Should it be this, that, and the other thing? And so I, I, I guess I'm kind of dismayed at the process uh, through that, that the, even the public's comments have kind of been whitewashed over quite a bit uh, because of the, the time and you know, who knew about COVID. One of my biggest uh, concerns and my real concern is that with private uh, property, you can't uh, remove, uh, the, say if you out, required two, two remaining trees, you can't remove those and replant. But if you're a developer uh, and the trees happen to be in the middle of the lot, you certainly can. And so I'm looking at it from an equity perspective. Uh, and I heard that uh, also from uh, the mayor and council member Nixon, that those are very uh, you know, different. I also heard it from a couple of the council members earlier that, hey, let's make sure, let's even the playing field for a private homeowner uh, versus a developer. Uh, and I don't think this code does that. So that's my uh, concern and my comments. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. So, uh, John? Uh, yeah, uh, thank you. I have a few comments as well. Um, so much time and energy has been pursued in revising the Kirtland Tree Code Chapter 95. This process has occurred over the period of several years. During this time frame, there's been collaborative opposing groups uh, coagulating different opinions on tree code implementation, as well as the various outreach, outreach meetings, both public and private. During this time frame, the Houghton Community Council has participated and on December 4th, 2019, prepared a memorandum in conjunction with the Planning Commission with five governing principles for successful implement, implementation and approval. The first was to strive for a healthy, resilient urban forest with a 40% tree canopy cover. In review of the updated chapter 95, the tree canopy goals have been squarely placed on private citizens with regards to tracking and achieving canopy cover. There has been no meaningful discussion as to how this canopy cover will be monitored long-term for success in the tree code. Additionally, and more importantly, there is no mechanism to review public property, um, uh, public rights of way, and how they make up vast canopy covers. Without these mechanisms and systems in place, it's very difficult to objectively understand how the goals are being maintained and achieved. The second item was to strive for an objective process with predictable outcomes. This revised chapter 95 does not uh, result in independent, objective, predictable outcomes. 
rather a series of goals and objectives that can be applied by one side only. That's the planner for the project. This single issue was probably the most debated subject through this multi-year review process, and nothing has been done to rectify this fundamental issue of review. Number three, consider homeowner preferences for sunlight to generate solar energy and photosynthesis, photosynthesis as well as views. And I'll agree, while it appears there has been um, some revised provisions in the code for flexibility, allowing homeowners to utilize their property as they wish, not, not enough has been done to substantially codify the issue to a point where a simple disagreement with a planning official could result in a, neighbor a negative impact on one's property. Item number four, allow modifications to propose building plans to retain trees that would not result in unreasonable negative consequences to property owners. The term unreasonably negative consequences is highly subjective. In our memorandum, we obviously referring to the desire and finances of one's property. The Public Works Department has such regulations when it comes to revising transmission lines in front of their property for redevelopment. For code language to state that a planning official can recommend redesigning aspects of a project, um, this, these redesigning configurations could be based solely upon tree preservation as interpreted by the planning official. As a practicing architect, there are many more decisions that go into home placement, orientation, design, and layout than simply existing trees on properties. To saddle a homeowner with an indiscriminate request after having engaged professionals spending money interpreting codes to their design wishes and programmatic design criteria is overly burdensome. Number five, promote simplicity and make the code easier to implement. The simple fact that two independent sources cannot read and implement the code and come to the same reasonable conclusion without the ability for an indiscriminate and irrevocable, irrevocable decision by the planning official to place additional requirements based on their interpretation of the code does not simplify nor make the code easier to implement. While I recognize that much effort has gone into revising chapter 95, the result has many inherent conflicting nuances um, in this particular case effort does not equal results i feel that all the parties simply got tired of dealing with issue and passed it through i think this is a horrible way to create regulation because of this I would like to move that the Houghton Community Council veto chapter 95 of the Kirkland Tree Code. But we, John, just a clarification, you, you wouldn't be vetoing chapter 95, you'd be vetoing the ordinance 4786, right? I, I, yes, yeah, so let me restate the motion. I would like to move that resolution R2022-4 regarding the Kirkland 
Zoning Code Chapter 95-04786 be vetoed by the Houghton Community Council. The resolution isn't a veto. You're you're just just I don't want to be overly um, difficult, John, but the resolution is is all written up to approve the um, ordinance 4786. So we're not vetoing the resolution. You're you're vetoing we're vetoing ordinance 4786. Am I correct? That's, that's correct. Yeah. Essentially, you would be passing a resolution that disapproved the correct adopted yeah, by so. John. You want to just state it as such. State your motion that you want to. You want your. You would be moving to adopt a resolution to veto Ordinance Forty Seven Eighty Six. Is what you, I think your your intent is. That that is my intent. I would like to move to veto Ordinance Forty Seven Eighty Six. Is there a second? A second. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. Now I have an opportunity for discussion. Um, I haven't heard from Betsy or Kristen, I've, and I'm not assuming that everybody has an opinion on this, but I'd like to make sure that everybody has a chance to, to at least comment. So Kristen? Very comment. Uh, I'm catching the tail end of this. Right, as someone that's been on the, the council for only a couple of months. So uh, I, uh, my opinion is that I should abstain from further conversation and, and action on this particular topic. Okay, that's fair. I, I appreciate that. Betsy, do you have anything you'd like to say? No, <laughs> Betsy? Well, I, I, as you know, I am loath to veto. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but I I, I I certainly value your input. We all do. I, I do think this code is problematic. I think the tree code has always been problematic. I think that's why we're sitting here the way we are right, right now. Um, <clears throat> it seems like every time we try to simplify it, it just gets more, gets more, more difficult. Um, <clears throat> there's things about this I, I don't agree with. Um, <clears throat> there's other things about it I do. I guess I could go either way. I, I probably wouldn't vote to veto it. Just also considering our lung, our lifespan, <laughs> it feels like just a I don't really think that we should make a decision based upon whether we're going to be uh, in existence after June. I think we should do, we should be taking actions just as though we were, we were going to continue. I, I don't see why we should alter our, our actions. So, uh, you know, by vetoing this um, resolution, we would keep the remain, we would keep the existing tree codes. That's in. what would happen. Yeah. I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not trying to push you one way or the other. I'm just trying to make sure everybody is heard and that we all have uh, the same information we're working with and, you know, yeah. What we're, yeah. So I'm not looking, I just wanted, we're having discussion. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, more, hate, I don't hate the existing tree codes to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Um, 
anyone else care to any other discussion that you'd like to um, put forth before we vote on the motion? Any questions? I haven't expressed my own opinion, but frankly, um, the, 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 the biggest thing to me from the beginning on this was an objective process with predictable outcomes. That was, everybody agreed that that was, an, that was really an important part of this. And the one thing that was, was crucial to that was having some limit that if, if they achieved a certain threshold of credits and that, that constituted, then they knew at that point they would, they would be uh, safe and, that, and that's been eliminated. And that one thing alone, when I saw that, I said, well, I guess they just decided that that's not the, 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 the objective predictable outcomes is just not a priority. And I, I just can't agree with that. I think it's wrong. So personally, I, I, I agree with John. Uh, and I don't like, I didn't, I didn't, I don't necessarily like, I, I also agree with Betsy. I don't, I'm not a big fan of the existing free code, but I don't think this is an, an, an improvement. It doesn't, it, it's still, it, it's creating more problems. And um, so I, I can't support it. And I know it's, it's not going to have any long lasting effect, but at least on principle, I think we, we should act as though we were still going to be around after June. So. What do you think is the most onerous? Do you think that is the most onerous part about Personally, it? Personally, to me, that was the biggest disappointment the, because the credits that were well, the objective process with predictable outcomes, that's not there. That, that and, one provision. Yeah. And not having the, those tree credits where you knew exactly that you, you I mean there's a lot of specifications in here that's you know I mean I kind of know what was going to happen if I cut down a 28 inch diameter tree I mean that I mean I feel like I do have some predictability on this so where specifically do you feel it's unpredictable oh it's it's on the tree credits you know our recommendation and it was it was the biggest you know, it, we, we specified certain areas that we we considered would be probably a basis for a veto action. Right. And this, this was one of the biggies. It's establishing a tree credit, uh, 50 tree credits per acre quota um, that would determine whether or not um, they could require retention of additional trees beyond that. That was something that was heavily debated and that's Fine. primarily with development. <laughs> yeah, I and I'm not saying I, I agree with points that have been made in other in other areas, but that one thing alone is a deal breaker for me. I, it just it's it's wrong. So, so you're not buying the staff response to it. Well, the staff response doesn't <laughs> address the predictability, <laughs> the objective predictability. All they say is, well, there's development guarantees. But it's subject to uh, utilize available site plan alterations and variations to development standards in order to retain. These are the these are the problems that the, that the development community has experienced, and that was they were just give us some predictability. 
don't leave us at the whims of staff determining whether something is uh, more important than, uh, than retaining trees. I don't know. That, well, that's I can just, yeah, and I can, I can just kind of add to, you know, a little more context. You know, I know that this was a super fast overview, but, um, you know, kind of the, the intent here is, you know, with the phase development review process being eliminated, um, trees would be addressed much earlier on during the development review um, project or during the project in general. So, um, you know, there would in, in that way be more information available at a pre-submittal meeting to be able to kind of have a direction as you leave that meeting, knowing you know what would get approved or what wouldn't get approved. So um, those you know the, those processes are still being kind of fleshed out with the city. But I just wanted to point that out. The intent is to try to increase predictability um, for for applicants and for for developers. But there's there's a lot there's a lot of different details in there. I I understand that and. Yeah. Yeah. We believe me, Katie, we don't, we're not, uh, we're not holding you personally responsible for it. Oh, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> just don't take I just, it personal. <laughs> yes. Okay. <there's>... Oh, <laughs> okay. not at all. Don't Larry's worry. got his hand up. Yeah. Well, I think the predictability, because I participated in a lot of those working group meetings, is even before you could, would have a pre submit a lot of thing. It's at the stage when a developer is looking to actually put up a, a do to do their due diligence and put a hold on property out there. Uh, and they need that assurance early, early on to be able to move forward. And then if that changes uh, in that process, I think that's was one of the biggest concerns uh, that you, they couldn't just do the layout and start counting tree credits and say, oh, we can get there from here. Or, and then the other part with staff, yeah, right now we have one uh, developer review arborist, but that person may leave and come back in with somebody different or get enough development that you have two or you contract it out. Uh, so, those are some of the concerns I heard through the working group. Uh, just uh, who you get does determine what your results are. Uh, so I just thought I'd add that in because I did participate in those working group meetings. Yeah. Any other input? Further discussion? Further discussion? Okay, so there's a motion made by John, seconded by Bill to veto ordinance 4786. All in favor of that motion, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? I guess that's me. That's okay, Betsy. <laughs> we respect that. <laughs> and Kristen, for the record, is abstaining. So uh, we have a, a vote of five to one to veto the ordinance and Katie believe me don't take it personally <laughs> we, we respect everything you've done on this and your presentation was outstanding but there was you were you can only do what you can do <laughs> so we we had we had you had a big big bogey to overcome in this when they were trying to push through something that was clear we'd already given them a clear indication on what we 
thought might be the basis for a veto. And so I'm not surprised at this outcome. But you made a valiant effort <laughs> to, to well, and, uh, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and two city council members who voted no on this as well. So yeah. Yeah, and ironically, two of the sitting city council members who did vote for this, they were participants in the guideline in, in, in our guiding principles. So <laughs> for what it's Par for the course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At any rate, so that uh, let's move on. Uh, next um, time. I'm sorry, Rick, can I ask a quick question? Of course you can. Yeah, I think what what we should do is convert the ordinance approving to ordinance rejecting. And I wonder if John could send you his, I think you put it well around the guiding principles. If you'd be willing to share your notes with Rick, if that's appropriate for your findings in that resolution. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah. Okay. So if you just, um, and I can share the word document with you and get that into um, that resolution format for your signature. Be good. Okay. John, are you good with that? Absolutely. Jeremy, thank you very much for the insight. I appreciate it. I'll forward it to you here, Rick, when we're done tonight. Well, and to Jeremy, obviously, yeah. Um, so let's move into autonomous personal delivery devices. Good evening. Can you hear me? Yes. Awesome. All right. Let me get my presentation up here. Can you see that? Yes. Great. All right. All right. Good evening. I'm here to uh, provide a briefing on autonomous personal delivery devices, APDDs, in the city of Kirkland. Um, tonight's agenda includes a staff briefing on the topic, followed by your input on potential regulations. Houghton Community Council uh, should tell staff if, uh, uh, if um, you'll be participating in the joint public hearing with Planning Commission tentatively scheduled for May 26th. Uh, since this topic involves both regulating land use and the right of way, here are is a reminder of the roles of Houghton Community Council. HEC is an, has advisory and approval authority over matters related to zoning regulations and land use within the Houghton area. The Transportation Commission will advise City Council on APD related transportation issues within the right of way. Here's some background again um, in 2019, uh, Washington State Legislature passed HB House Bill 30, uh, 32, or, or sorry, 1325, sorry, um, enacted as Chapter 46, 
uh, 75 RCW, identifying the minimum operation uh, parameters for APDDs, which include operations in accordance with ordinances, resolutions, rules, and regulations established by the jurisdiction governing the rights way within which personal delivery devices operate. In late 2021, Kirkland received four applications to deploy APDDs in the city rights of way to deliver goods to residents. Staff review, staff's review of the applications raised questions, several areas of concern and it identified the city had lacked the code necessary to adequately review and condition the use. On April 18th, oh, I'm sorry, January 18th, boy, City Council passed an emergency moratorium on acceptance of applications and issuance of building permits for APB, APDDs and their dispensers within the city of Kirkland. Hilton Community Council approved the moratorium with the adopted resolution R2022-3 on March 28th. The moratorium gives staff time to study and address concerns such as identifying basic facts about the technology, address concerns over safety and privacy, identify public benefits, um, and study other cities re regulating this technology. Uh, your meeting packet provides an early overview of the technology, specifically the Amazon Scout delivery program, its AD, APDD technology and dispensers, uh, how Scout delivers packages, operator requirements under state law, limitations of the technology, including inclement weather and steep hills, a brief discussion on how Amazon plans to use the technology as well as link, uh, links to other companies also working with this technology, staff initial thoughts on public safety, and a summary of how other cities are regulating the devices and their dispensers. Since this meeting um, packet was created, uh, staff has gained additional information after conducting public outreach and received a demonstration of the Amazon program. Amazon provided a demonstration at one of their testing locations in Snohomish County. Staff was able to observe Scout uh, program and came away with the following observations. Currently, the program only operates in low density single family neighborhoods. The program is pretty hands-on and in its infancy. Amazon uh, employees arrive at a dispenser, conduct diagnostics, load packages, and manually operate the scouts off the premises to a designated location on the sidewalk. Unlike the picture here, the dispenser has an awning alongside, uh, uh, along its side and runs the length of the unit and extends out about the width of a parking stall. The delivery van parks next to the awning. At a minimum, three parking spaces are consumed with the dispenser, its awning, and delivery van. It's unclear if all employees show up um, in the delivery van, so additional vehicles may be on the premises. Um, according to Amazon, employees stay on the premises throughout the delivery process, which can be up to six hours. During delivery, the scout moves at a slow pace, 
and must remotely op be remotely operated at intersections. According to Amazon's, uh, the device can't reach 15 miles per hour, as it says in your meeting packet. Um, and during the demonstration, staff observed the device moved at less than walking pace. Also during the demonstration, the device remained in the middle of the sidewalk. Obstacles such as a fallen A-frame sign could not be tra traversed. And when encountering people, the device stops and does not move off or to the side of the sidewalk. Uh, rem remote employees take over the scout when the path is obstructed and employees are also nearby to complete an order delivery if the scout fails to deliver the parcel. Okay, during, uh, we had some public outreach. So staff conducted two small community outreach meetings on APDDs. The uh, next two slides summarizes what we heard from the community. They would like, the community would like to know how the, uh, what is the public benefit to the city as a whole. Um, uh, the community is concerned about how, uh, how the, the technology impacts those who are disabled and want to ensure that there's no American Disability Act violations. Um, how does the technology align with the city, city's sustainability master plan? There are also concerns about traffic incidents uh, along uh, blind, uh, at blind driveways. Um, additionally, um, the questions such as, uh, would police department resources be disproportionately used on policing APDDs? There were privacy concerns over, over video recording and who has access to this information and how are we gonna define if the program is bad? What rate of incidents would make it good or bad? Other observations. Um, this technology is early in its development and requires a lot of hands-on attention. Um, Amazon has acknowledged that there will be changes to the Scout devices, which uh, could manifest in something that looks and operates differently in the future. There may be other APD pro, uh, uh, programs that have mobile dispensers, such as vans and trucks to, uh, to disperse from. Other companies such as uh, Coco, um, which was linked in your uh, memo, does not require dispenser at all and, um, and has a business model that puts the, its product in uh, commercial areas next to restaurants. Whether on private property or on the public uh, uh, or on public street, safety should uh, be a priority uh, with any regulation. Staff will need to study the safety implications um, to uh, vehicular traffic, pedestrian, uh, pedestrians, bicyclists, emergency response, and potential and potential conflicts with other users. Amazon is conducting accessibility testing with the World Institute uh, on Disability to address issues with the disabled community and the Scout program, and that is still forthcoming. All right, before I, uh, I take some questions uh, and hear your thoughts, here's a, a basic landscape on how to uh, regulate uh, land use component of this technology. There are four options. We can uh, not allow it, 
um, allow it as a pilot project uh, for a specific time, come back and uh, make uh, permanent regulations, allow it or uh, allow it um, with no discretionary land use decision, uh, meaning set a code, but allow it without any kind of discretionary land use review or allow it with a discretionary land use review, uh, setting uh, certain criteria for staff to review and approve APDs in, um, in Kirkland. But regardless of the type of regulations, uh, it should, regulations should define the use and activity within the uh, city of Kirkland, identify the when and where it is allowed. Uh, it could be like banned on like steep, hill, uh, steep areas like Oak Hill and other areas with uh, challenging topography or lack of infrastructure. Uh, in the case of Amazon dispensers, we should set parking and siting requirements on private property. Um, that's the quick overview. That's the 30,000 feet of APDDs and their dispensers. Um, and I can take any questions before hearing uh, your thoughts. Do I see any hands? Oh, Larry. Uh, Scott, thanks for the presentation. So could some of the regulations in the, any of the other jurisdictions that look at it kind of restrict their use by time of day, say non-peak periods, uh, that's when you may have the, uh, uh, or near schools, other types of things like that, where you might have a lot of pedestrian activity uh, during certain time periods or a lot of driveway activity during other time periods. Yeah, I've definitely, there's definitely um, a mixture out there of where or even if they can be operating in the kind of desired areas such as uh, neighbor, uh, even neighborhoods. I know um, there are some that just keep it um, in commercial areas um, and definitely um, they do set lots of parameters of, of like what level of infrastructure is needed, the minimum threshold of infrastructure and where they can operate. Um, so minimum sidewalk widths are very common. Um, and in other jurisdictions, they, they generally kind of identify them as, you know, accessory to some, to, to primary uses and have to, have to, um, adhere to all of the uh, the land use requirements of that primary use, including buffering, land use buffering and such, signage requirements, et cetera. So I guess even if it's only in commercial areas, especially if it's retail oriented, uh, there's kind of peak peak periods when there's a lot, lot more activity out there, which could result in a higher number of conflicts and things like yeah. that. So that's, yeah. that's kind of the stuff I'd like to, get more research in on that through the process yeah. and here on. So thanks. Yep. I think Betsy was next. Hi, Scott. Thank you. Um, I guess my question is the process is there's going to be a public hearing on this, correct? Yeah. So the, it, in terms of, you know, the next steps, so there'll be a council briefing of what we're, what we hear from this group and transportation commission, planning commission, We'll brief the council, and then this will that will full follow up with a with a um, some 
staff crafting some uh, code and then a public hearing um, with the with the planning commission and and probably um, home and community council. Okay, <clears throat> so. My question is, I mean, at least at Houghton, there's an awful lot of, awful lot of mothers with um, the strollers and um, children on little bicycles. And, and some of our sidewalks are very narrow and um, a lot of our streets don't have sidewalks. So it sounds like if you're on a three foot sidewalk on 108th, <clears throat> I think one side of the street has pretty narrow sidewalks um, and you're pushing a stroller, this thing would just stop in the middle of the sidewalk and the stroller would have to either move off the sidewalk into the street to get around it or they would have to wait for the operator to come and move it move it or take remote control over it. Yes. And so that would be, there would definitely be a delay in the timing in which the device would st stop and yeah. then realize that, um, that if the, if the obstruction doesn't move, then a remote operator probably would, would uh, come into uh, play. The timing of that is just not, we're not quite sure. Yeah. Um, and this is just <laughs> reviewing this single technology, this single mm -hmm. technology from Amazon. There are other technologies out there. Um, they all look remote, very much the same. I mean, most of them do. I think the links that I gave you were, I think about th three quarters of them all look like little coolers on wheels. Um, yeah. but, um, they, might have different, you know, different response times. They would operate in different, potentially in different areas. And again, regulations such as setting certain types of, you know, infrastructure requirements might be a very wise uh, protocol. Yeah, I, I think I agree with a lot of Margaret Bull's comments. And I would say, keep them out of the single family residential. I mean, I I can see how they might be useful in commercial settings, but I think they're going to be very problematic and dangerous um, in in residential neighborhoods. So. Bill, yeah, thanks, Scott. Uh, great presentation. Um, my question is: I'm I'm a runner, and I'm out on Kirkland sidewalks quite a bit uh, most days of the week. And something that jumps out at me about this thing is trip hazard. I can see this thing being stuck on the sidewalk somewhere in some of these dark shady areas on 108th. Um, you, you wouldn't see it, you know, older person, my trip on it, there's a stroller issue that uh, Brett, Betsy brought out. That's a really good point. Um, has anybody talked about that in any of the meetings so far? And has anybody talked about proximity warning, you know, audible alerts or light alerts that would be on this thing? Yeah, so the tech, again, the technology is very, very new. It, it it even looked a slightly different from the time when you look at the, uh, even the photos that I had in my presentation, they, they look a little bit different. The lights are in different locations. They're close, you know, closer to the top of the top of the uh, dispenser now. So probably as a visibility thing, we didn't witness any kind of audio warning of, you know, the device being in a place that, you know, um, might not be, you know, 
easily seen. Uh, they are required by state law to have lights and um, on, uh, especially if they're operating at certain times of the evening. Um, but of course, you know, cities can also create regulations themselves that would require potentially having certain types of uh, visibility requirements, such as lights being on at all times, you know, um, uh, maybe setting forth, you know, some sort of auditory warning um, in certain circumstances, um, even if that technology is not quite there yet. I can imagine that, that it's not too far in the future. Okay, thank you. Ruth, you had your hand up, but now I see it's removed. Did you change your mind? No, I don't know why it did that. It's still up. So. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you were next, and then Kristen. My hand is up. Um, <laughs> in looking at the notes, I'm trying to figure out where in Houghton this would work, because it says it was, um, they're not going to test in Kirkland downtown core, um, and they do not operate on narrow or crowded sidewalks. And I assume they don't really operate on no sidewalks. So you have some streets that you have a street that has a sidewalk and it connects to another street with no sidewalk, which connects to another street with a sidewalk. So that leaves out a lot of residential. I know Lake Washington Boulevard is out because that's all multifamily. It says it's only will only go to single family, not multifamily buildings. So Lake Washington Boulevard's out, Lakeview up where I am. It doesn't work on hills, so that's all of this Lakeview area because we're all hills here. Um, just kind of curious as to where they think in Houghton this might deliver to. Well, um, as far as uh, Amazon is concerned, there is not a place they identify or mapped for, for Houghton. All of the applications that came in are all north of the Houghton area. So, and in they do kind of, it does look a little interesting in certain areas where they, they are aware of infrastructure limitations, the technology, you know, cannot operate again uh, in, on, in steep, on steep hills. They just need, you know, relatively flat or, or flatter environments um, and a kind of infrastructure that can handle it. So um, I, yeah, there's like, you know, it has to have, you know, a kind of a sidewalk and a, and a speed zone that, that works for them. You know, it has to be adjacent to, you know, a, a kind of a commercial area that's not going to be putting them in a place where they would have to take the, have the units go across a very busy arterial street or something. It didn't seem like that there was any of, they were avoiding all of these, these, um, uh, you know, areas of the city that were where the infrastructure uh, might be problematic. Okay. For them. Be, um, because it also said um, they would not operate over a certain limit of rainfall or threat of snow. So, yeah. I mean, so if you're waiting for delivery and it might snow that day, I mean, it just, it sounds like there's just a lot of questions and I'm concerned with getting in on the beginning of something. It almost seems, it's kind of like in Seattle when they did the electric bikes and people mm -hmm. said, how are you going to do electric bikes in the rain and steep hills and all of that? And then a bunch of those companies went under and then they refined it and refined it. I'm almost, 
I would be more, I don't know if we need to be the city that's the um, test case for this, if they're testing in other places, um, and then we can take advantage of it later when we find out maybe Amazon's not good, but this other service that you said is there, it's better. So that would be my thing is I don't know why we would need to be in on the forefront otherwise, other than it's exciting to be on the forefront, but it seems like there's a lot of questions in, in our city. Kristen, you had your hand up. Kristen, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so listening to the commentary thus far, I think one thing that I would be remiss not to point out is uh, not only do we have families with strollers, but we have individuals with different abilities, those that use wheelchairs and walkers, those that are visually impaired or uh, have, are hearing impaired. And everything I've heard thus far presents a hardship to that type of population. Imagine you're using your wheelchair to go down the street and the vehicles on the, on the sidewalk and you're going to wait until that moves. Uh, audio cues may not work for some, lights may not work for some. So I actually think that this presents quite a hardship to differently abled individuals. Um, and on that note, I think we need to hear more from the community around whether or not they're open to piloting this type of technology. And when we hear from the community, we'd like to make sure that we have some of our differently abled individuals voicing their concerns, because uh, I think there's a big chance that that could be overlooked. Thank you, Kristen. Betsy? Yeah, you know, I'm getting energized about this one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the sidewalks are for pedestrians. And I, and I really think we need to keep that in mind, is that the sidewalks are for pedestrians. They are not for motorized vehicles. They are not for gasoline-powered motors vehicles. They are not for vehicles. You're not Technically, well, I guess you can ride a bike on the sidewalks, but even for years, you couldn't even ride a bike on a sidewalk. It's for pedestrians. People pay to put a sidewalk and they have to install a sidewalk in front of their house. They're paying for that. And now Amazon has the, it's, you know, Amazon is using our infrastructure that is for pedestrians for its business. I just think that's wrong. I think if they want to have a dedicated lane that they install on the street, they can put their little vehicles there. But I don't think we should have to accommodate as pedestrians, they're trying to be a more walkable city and Amazon's taking over our sidewalks. So I'm just like, <laughs> not into it. <laughs> okay, I'm done. <laughs> I, I, I see Scott nodding. <laughs> Showing some, you know, what, what I want to ask Scott is what is the compelling benefit, public benefit to even consider? Why is this even under consideration? There's no public benefit. It's an Amazon benefit. But, but that, that's, <laughs> that's my question. Yeah. Well, I think the city, the city was kind of put into a position where we just received applications. And in order to kind of move forward with, with, you know, understanding how we're going to regulate this, we needed to kind of first stop what was happening and then have this discussion right here and, and, and identify 
if there is a public benefit at all, um, Amazon might say that you know they're getting that you get your last mile delivery that that you would you know that individuals might get same you know same day delivery program like you know and gets amped up if the technology gets realized. Um, there's climate benefits as they're not using you know gas powered vehicles to uh, to operate. Um, in neighborhoods. Um, well, they could buy electric vehicles then. <laughs> yeah. There, I mean, there's a, you know, it, it's still, again, it's a, it's a very early, a new technology. It's early in its development. Um, you know, these questions, you know, are probably, you know, are happening in select places where, you know, you know, companies like Amazon are are choosing to test their uh, their technology. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these are these are new questions that we're going to continue to have um, as this proliferates in, in in society. Okay, John, you've not had a chance to ask any questions or comment. Um. Thank you, Scott, for the presentation. Very nice to see you. Nice to see you. Um, my questions are really, I'm gonna jump from your 30,000 foot view to a 50,000 foot view. Um, I think we can all kind of understand why technology companies want to expand their technological abilities. I think we can all understand uh, reactions uh, like Margaret Bull has had and like Betsy have had about conflicting issues. My questions really are that sort of in the Pacific Northwest, Kirkland, Redmond and Bellevue are branding themselves as the technology center, um, the technology triangle, excuse me, to kind of compete with um, uh, down in California. And, and we are attracting a significant number of technological companies here that want to come and grow technology. So the real question is, and you kind of answered when you said they sprung this on Kirkland, does the city of Kirkland have a desire to somehow coordinate, to work with, to partner with, to try and figure out how to make technology work better for our community, for the citizens to integrate better, to save energy, to be less pollution generating, or is, is this entire project really one-sided by a development company coming to a city? What, which way is it? Is it one-sided or is, is, are, are both sides interested in figuring this out? Um, well, I think I've, I've probably already answered. I think we, we, we did have it sprung on us. Um, it was something that, that um, we weren't approached, no one approached the city asking to partner with the city um, on, on trying to um, explore the, the, the benefits of this technology first and foremost. So we're kind of, look, when we went out and, um, and witnessed the demonstration, pro uh, demonstration project from Amazon, we are really looking at a single company that is, that is looking to explore you know, their version of this. And so we have a lot of questions ourselves as to you know, 
is this really the only type of, you know, um, personal delivery device um, paradigm, business paradigm? And I think, I don't think it is. There's many different, yeah, yeah, modes of of utilizing this technology. So um, it just, it makes, you know, it very clear and staff was very cognizant that we're just, we're really, concern with a lot of the same the same conflicts that 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 you've all um, identified you know including you know people with, with a disability to um, you know the what is the the sidewalk for you know uh, who has right you know what is the right to right away um, do we what is the public benefit all of this these are very fundamental questions that on a very new technology and i think we're all learning this together at the same time what what is what is the um the what is i guess kirkland's appetite for this uh you know having this technology in our city okay larry Uh, do you happen to know if uh the state has also done anything related to uh, drone deliveries uh, because this is basically be the, gra- the ground version of a drone delivery. Well, I know that the city of Kirkland is exploring, you know, it's public use of, of this, at least, you know, uh, operating on a pu- pilot version of this. Um, but that's something that I, that's a whole other technology that, you know, um, I have not yet, you know, had the privilege of exploring and, and finding out all the different issues related to that. But I'm pretty sure that's very similar, at least in, as it relates to safety and privacy concerns. And, yeah. you know, it's, you know, I, how it, I was just wondering, are we jumping toward some pilot project or other thing with these that gets replaced uh, in a few years because, you know, hey, the new toy is drones, drone deliveries. <laughs> Here. I think it's going to be Trevor Shays myself, but it's just me. <laughs> so, thanks. Okay, so I think we've all had a chance to express our questions and concerns. Um, I, the, the only question is, it seems to me, is whether we want to participate in the joint public hearing with the Planning Commission on May 26th, does anybody uh, disagree with us being a uh, being a participant in that joint public meeting, joint public hearing? Anybody think it's not a good idea? Larry? My comment isn't that I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's uh, very valuable for us to put it put in, but as Scott said, there's right now there's nothing there in, uh, in Houghton uh, and then I don't know how quickly this all process will come out. And I know you want to treat this as if we're going to continue to exist, but uh, I would also suggest if we don't uh, participate as a body to do it, that we as individuals would take that opportunity to participate. Yeah. 
Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not hearing anybody who objects to participating as a body. And, and I, I do believe that it's appropriate for us to continue just as though we were going to be on it, it until, until we no longer exist, we should be operating on the same basis. I don't, I'm not into the lame duck. <laughs> we're just not, not doing our duty. Our duty is to continue until we no longer have authority. That's my I feeling. I think our, our council has historically had very good input. Yeah, I, I, I think we I think we can be constructive, and uh, so yeah. So with that, Scott, I think pencil or schedule us in for the the joint public hearing, and um, I I presume that uh, that'll be chaired by the planning commission. We'll just be. Uh, joint participant in the process with them. Okay, thank Great. you so much. Excellent presentation. I really, really appreciate your, your um, all, all of your responses. Great. Great, thank you. Thank you. All right. And so with that, we're now at, in the administrative reports and council discussion section of our meeting and under the La Quinta Permanent Supportive Housing Council discussion. If you remember last, uh, at our last meeting, we uh, agreed to have a committee that established a committee. And the idea was that uh, we didn't know when the city, uh, I, I, let me back up. I, Jeremy said that the city was in the process of setting up uh, some sort of a public uh, process uh, to get public input on this. And we didn't know whether that was gonna happen before our next meeting. And so we actually uh, authorized this committee to, if, if that were to happen, for that committee to go ahead and, 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 and put, put together their uh, suggestions, recommendations on behalf of the community council. However, um, fortunately that, that meeting is going to be on May 9th. And so we do have an opportunity as a council to consider what um, the committee has, has put together so far. And um, Ruth has, um, I don't know if everybody has had a chance to see it in, in, uh, in, our, in our email, just probably 15, 20 minutes before a meeting, Ruth um, sent, uh, sent us all uh, six pages of recommendations that she had put together based upon her experiences in property management. And um, what I'm gonna do is ask for Ruth to maybe present and summarize that and uh, we'll have an opportunity to, to get some feedback and. And, and decide how we want to present it, if we want to uh, present this prior to the hearing or how we, want to, how we want to use it. So Ruth, I'm going to turn this over to you and let you have the okay. floor. So our committee was three people. So what we did is I took John's notes from his airplane trip. He had a bunch of notes that he took when he was on a plane. And then Kristen sent the um, very helpful, sent the, basically the outline. So she, she did like resident screening criteria and had some questions. So then I just went by outline, outline and used um, some of John's, well, all of John's thoughts, but then just as a um, landlord, just thought if, that, that 
personally, I think that's how it should be looked at. I mean, they're basically going to apply to be in there, right? They said that there's not going to be, not everybody was going to get in there. There's going to be a process. So, um, so we just broke it down by the screening criteria um, as we saw it. Um, then lists of prohibited residents or actions, some rules, um, and then all these things can be added to or taken away. So for instance, uh, page three, a lot of that is the city's going to look at that and say, yeah, forget it. But that's if a normal resident, a tenant, has to can have a 10-day notice to quit or a three-day notice to quit or whatever, I feel that the um, permanent supportive housing should be the same way as as a um, healthy person, I guess, if that's a, if we're differentiating it. So that's where that's just kind of more of the process of managing it. Um, and then do you just kind of, and again, talked about parking, you know, and just arbitrarily each person gets one parking space, no RVs, but I don't know, did you see the picture? Someone yeah. is already an RV there. Um, and this is all just basic tenant responsibilities. So, um, and then the citizen advisory board, some ideas on who should be at that. And then a, a link to the good neighbor advisory committee for Bellevue. So they're a little ahead of us on that. Um, so it's more of you just kind of reviewing it and would love input and how to make it better. But I don't I, know if everyone got a chance to uh, obviously not look at it. Oh, yeah. has, has anyone had a chance to look at it? I, I took a quick look at it, but I, I mean, literally it was an Evelyn Woods uh, quickie. Yeah. So what, what, what I'd like to uh, ask is um, one of the things that we really wanted to talk about was um, objective, specific objective measures that that would be monitored and 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 if if they failed to meet those measures and then after so many uh, incidents or so many or you know a definition of success and and if it's not meeting those meeting the criteria that have been set then at that point it would trigger a uh, some process that could result in a change in use so that it, it, it would have to entertain a different population if it was creating too many negative consequences. But did you get into any of the, any specific measurements or criteria? That is on the second to last page in terms of on-site metrics. Okay. Recommended. Uh, and then another recommendation is the uh, Inn at Queen Anne has been open since the end of January. We're just around the 90 day mark. That should have metrics. That should have a bench benchmark. We should be able to benchmark the Inn at Queen Anne, understand what's being reported, what's being monitored, and how to start measuring success. So my recommendation would be that uh, either prior to May 9th or on May 9th, we request those benchmarks from the first 90 days of the Inn at Queen Anne. Yeah. 
Do we know what information is available? Not a, no idea. And, and has anyone tried to get it? Um, you know, I was going to send an email to Leo Floor and I didn't. Mentally, I, I, it's up there, but no. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to request that from Leo. Would you? Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. I, I don't want to dominate this, but to me, that above all, if we can get specific measures of success and and what is and isn't acceptable and, and that can be monitored and reported on a regular basis. Like I think uh, one of our, uh, Stuart Early, I, I, I love, you know, his recommendation was, you know, have those measures online and, and transparent. It's reported on a monthly basis so people can be seeing the uh, these measures, but we need to know what, what measures are going to be most helpful and 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 are available and, and how you know how to how to get that information. Betsy, did you have something to say? No, okay. No, I did. I do. Okay. Yeah. Um I totally agree that we need we we need that. Um so I'm all for it. Yay, get those metrics and <laughs> the um I want to reiterate, I'm gonna go back because <clears throat> You know, everybody's talking about, you know, the, the stick, you know, but there's also the, the care. I mean, the thing is, I try to imagine myself living in a hotel room. I mean, nothing would kill my soul faster than having to live in, yeah. a, in a hotel room yeah. at the La Quita. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I really think that, and, and also I, I, I do want to say, I do have a family member who has been an addict, who has been homeless in Seattle and, and in Bellevue on the east side. So I talked at length with this person. Um, I made an appointment, you know, I just said, let's take a walk and let's talk, you know, and he was saying, this is great. This is what these people need. They need to get off the street, but there's trouble here, <laughs> you know, there's, there's trouble. And, and, um, he said, one of the things that you need to do is you need to keep people busy. And that's what I was thinking, too. I was thinking, you know, there's nothing more soul sucking, like I said, than sitting around in a parking lot in a La Quinta, you know. And so he, he suggested that we, we do something with labor ready where the van comes every day and says, who's working today and gets gets people over to job sites that, you know, you, you have you have classes maybe we can get classes there. I'm, I wanted to start, I want to start a library there. I want to make sure there's books for people to read and a quiet room where people can read. I want to start a pea patch and a garden so that people can grow food, grow flowers, grow vegetables, learn how to do something. Maybe they can be taught, you know, cooking, you know, maybe we can have people coming in, you know, like making this a model situation so that it's, it's not all like these people are bad, they're criminals. Maybe they really do need a leg up. I mean, let's give them a chance, you know, maybe. Um, but but this, but um, also, I'm, I'm glad to hear there's going to be food there. I don't quite understand how that's going to work yet. But I do know that um, this person I talked to said that Maybe grocery stores or things can give vouchers to some of these people because he said 
there will be a lot of shoplifting. He said, that's, he said, if, you know, there can be, I mean, especially if they're unemployed and don't have any money and stuff like that. He worried about the, um, the gas station that's right around the corner. People just going in and <clears throat> taking stuff out of the, you know, the gas, you know, the little treats, you know, the chips, stuff like that. <clears throat> and the QFC. And, and was just saying, you know, maybe if somehow there's a cooperation where the county or something pays for vouchers or everybody gets like five bucks or something so they can go in and they can pay for some food. And so they can buy their own, buy their own food and have some autonomy that way and not feeling like they have to steal it. Um, <clears throat> so I just think that there's a lot of ways to maybe make this more of a success. But this guy also said, he said, one strike, I mean, they, it's only going to take one incident for never for the east side to never have another one of these things again. I mean, no, no city's going to want this if something bad happens at this one. So they really need to. <clears throat> oh, he, so they really need to walk. They really need to understand that they got to mind their P's and Q's. He also suggested that every day, <clears throat> maybe twice a day, that the residents are responsible for cleaning up the parking lot, for going out and maintaining maintaining it. I mean, it's just like making them more responsible for it instead of like people coming down so heavy on it, give them more responsibility for like, hey, prove to us, prove to the city that you are a good neighbor and that more of these facilities um, should happen on the east, east side. So anyway, that's my two cents. Okay, thanks, Betsy. I think Bill, you're next. Yeah, um, because of the, the site location, the sensitivity around the, the schools being so close or just adjacent to it, I think there might, you might wanna have some language in here either in the resident rules or um, other section, code of, conduct, code of conduct about encroaching onto the school property. Um, you know, that would be a serious violation and, and maybe getting some a school administrator to provide some of that language or concern there to plug that in might be um, something to look at. But this is a great document, Ruth and Kristen, and who is the third party? John. To this? John. John, mm -hmm. this is, yeah, great, great work here. Appreciate that. I, before I forget to mention it, I should have mentioned before now, John has been fighting COVID for like three weeks, John. So he's been, well, trying to maintain a business. So oh <laughs> John's, oh gosh. John's ability to participate in this as well as everything in his life has been very difficult for the wow. last three weeks. Wow. He's, he's, as a retired Colonel of the U.S. Marines, I hereby make John an honorary U.S. Marine. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, that's very humbling. Bill. Congratulations, John. Wow. Uh, very humbling. Okay, Larry. <laughs> I, I agree that this is a really good uh, framework for the discussion and for our input. I think we should start off with uh, measures of success, and there should probably be. Uh, maybe uh, 
tiered some. These are the key ones, top three or four that we really want to watch or whatever those may be, including both positives as well as the negatives. I agree with uh, Betsy that we need to look at uh, the success the success of the programs uh, in there. Uh, I really would like to see something about uh, training opportunities, uh, people helping people get uh, job searches or resumes or other types of things uh, through the process in there. Uh, connections to GED programs. Uh, HopeLink is within our community and we ought to take advantage of uh, those resources as well. So I think maybe that's another part of it, of other opportunities of how does this connect with other uh, social service, uh, social service uh, providers. Yeah, maybe it's a food donation site, you know, and people can, can donate food, you know, and Mm. Yeah, but HopeLink does so much more than just the food stuff and just the energy yeah. and training you know, out there. And then there's a lot of other ones. So I'd like to kind of see the framework of yeah. how, yeah. How, how this program interacts with those uh, and make it a network and not just a, a single point of contact. Exactly. Not just an isolated little. Yeah. In the, in the concrete there. <laughs> yeah. John. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, great conversation, everyone. Um, two things jump out at me. Um, first is I love uh, Kristen's comment about we really should have some metrics already in finding out a 90-day period from Queen Anne. So I, I really think we should push hard on that, push the city to push hard as well. I think the city will have more clout in obtaining that information. So I think that's something that, that we should try and have the city council work on with the county council. Um, and, you know, maybe Kristen, if she's willing, could uh, maybe work with a city council member to try and get that information. I think that, I think that was really, because. We should have a lot of that. So good on you, Kristen. Uh, the second item is there's been a lot of discussion that this is in Kirkland, for Kirkland, promoting Kirkland. Kirkland wants to be involved. Um, I'm encouraged everyone, uh, the discussions about education and that sort of thing. I wonder if there's a way we could reach out to our own uh, vocational institute at Lake Washington Vocational Institute, which is in Kirkland in terms of trying to provide some sort of facilities for any um, off-site vocation work at the La Quinta Inn itself or working with people for simply um, uh, retraining people. I know when I uh, was instructing um, uh, at um, Another vocational school, it was all about rehabilitating people who had been hurt on job. And uh, this, so that was through Edmonds Community College where I taught for two years there. Um, and so I think an awful lot of people could that, that have some sort of skill set in something could might be very interested in welding or drafting or something else that our uh, community uh, um, 
Lake Washington Botec is really, really good at. I actually sat on their advisory board um, for several years in the architecture and drafting department. And so I'd be willing to reach out to that school to have a discussion with them about this. Great, John. Um, John, if the, when we talked about this at our last meeting, um, you felt really strongly that um, you wanted us to make a recommendation before the city had their um, public hearing process. Do you still feel that way or do you want to delay and, and maybe be able to refine what the committee has put together so far, um, particularly getting more specific measures and, and metrics? I, I would like with with uh, everyone's sort of agreement, I don't want to work independently from our council at all. Um, I would like perhaps during Thursday's meeting with the mayor, Rick, you and I can simply deliver the fact that the Houghton Community Council is working on this and will present something. Right. And then I, I think the, um, the document that's being put together with some additional input from tonight being refined, um, should be done. And I think maybe, I don't know, maybe we should have a conversation about how that would work after the hearing. I can see some advantages of presenting something before the hearing as a framework. I can also see advantages of doing it after work, after we have input. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure, but I think at Thursday's meeting with the mayor, you and I can at least say. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I already intended to do that. But my thought was, or my, my, my inclination is I would rather that we um, get as, make this document as complete as possible and as, as well uh, constructed as possible. And I think getting, getting the additional public input, the, you know, uh, being present, as many of us as possible, just participating in that um, public meeting and, and then taking that and the committee could, take that in and refine. And each of us could be, to the extent that we, we, we can submit information to the committee, uh, we can't be interacting with them because then we get into the Open Meetings Act. But if we're just sending them information and those three committee members are refining it um, and, and maybe get it into a state so that for our May meeting, we could plan to have a final uh, recommendation. So we would we would need the resolution sort of or at least the recommendations all put together so it can go out with our packet. Yes, that's what I'm seeing. That's yeah. what I'm that's what I'm envisioning. Okay. And just as an uh, yeah, does that does anybody disagree with that process? In May meeting. Do you mean the one on the May 9th or our our our, our meeting? May 23rd. Yeah. May 23rd. So we yeah. take information that we get from the meeting on the 9th yep. and add it, add things. And then as you, you just, if you email us things, we can just insert it, you know, as you have more time to look at it and tell us your thoughts and we can just insert it on this document and occasionally I can send it out. So people Jeremy, Jer Jeremy's got his hand up. We might be in trouble. <laughs> no, I'm just, I guess my, Suggestion is if you're going to be emailing the committee, just make that a one-way communication. Yes. To be a little safer on the Open Public Meetings Act rather than a dialogue. 
Absolutely. Get into an exchange with more than three members, then you got a problem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that was my my thought. Strictly one way. It's yeah. just people submitting information to the committee, the committee not interacting with the committee. I as an example, I, I have a sister-in-law who has worked in this specific type of uh, public service for the I'm going to say uh, three or four counties in Oregon. She's she's in, she's the head person for all uh, public services for these kinds of people. I know that if, I was looking as soon as I saw your document, I thought, oh, I want I got to get this down to her and get her feedback on it. And, and I'll ask her for ideas on the measures as well. And right. so, right. yeah, and that's and so I would just take it from her and, and submit it to you guys for you to work with it. And each of us can can submit our, our own any, any, anything you can come up with any way you, 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 you uh, care to get it. And I, I sure, I really would like to see measures of success as much as we can get objective measures, the better. So, so does that sound like a plan going forward? Great start committee. Okay. We really, really appreciate it. And I'm, I, I feel like it's gonna, we're gonna make good, good impact on the process. So that's that. And then the other thing is an update on the Houghton Park and Ride. Jeremy, do you have something for us? Yeah, just a, a little bit of information on that. Um, you did receive some correspondence, I think it's from Betsy, um, about this the Houghton Park and Ride and what's going on with that. The Houghton um, Washington State Department of Transportation has been looking into surplusing that piece of property for a number of years now. They have been going through a lengthy legal exercise, which is why it's taken so long to determine whether or not federal highway dollars were involved in the acquisition of the property before they were able to surplus it. So at this point, um, WashDOT has found that they can surplus it and they will surplus it. So when they do that, the they have to offer it first to another public agency. So they've offered it to city of Kirkland and to King County. And so the city has long had an interest in acquiring that so that we can control its destiny. Um, if a public agency doesn't want the property, then they would surplus it, then it would go to the private market. Mm. And so I think the city has long had an interest in kind of controlling the destiny of that for, for public purposes before it just falls to the um, private market or necessarily falls by default to say King County if King County chose to, to proceed with a purchase. So that's where it's at right now. WashDOT Wash is getting an appraisal of the property. I think it's got to go for fair market value. It, um, I don't think they have the ability to, to discount it. And so once the city receives that, then a council would decide whether, they, whether or not they want to proceed to potential purchase. Hmm. That's about everything I know about that. Well, Larry's going to ask me a difficult question anyway. <laughs> yeah. Any idea what the range of public purposes may be? Um, well, you guys, you longtime members of the community council have historically, the community council has expressed an interest in um, transit-oriented development or affordable housing on the site, right? So there's one. Um, we've talked to Lake Washington School District over the years that um, as the city looks at property, and this is true of the, um, <clears throat> the um, PCC project that we're looking at purchasing also is looking for potential public uh, public public partnerships or public private partnerships potentially for school space also. 
Um, so I think it, I think there's a variety of options out there. I don't think we I, well, I know that we haven't gotten through any exhaustive process to identify all the potential options. Larry is still on the floor. <laughs> one of the contexts I uh, put in that was the Northeast 85th Street. There's been several comments through that process of since there's no parking at the uh, Northeast 85th uh, BRT stop, it's ideas have come up for shuttle service from the Houghton Park and Ride up to there, up, up to the to the BRT line <laughs> to take more advantage of that. And I just wanted to see if that was part of the public benefit process. Yeah, it certainly could be. Um, I think it's I think it's all pretty open-ended at this point. I would think that'd be a sound transit <laughs> acquisition. Okay, Kristen, you were next. Uh, yeah, so the Houghton Park and Ride is one of the three final sites uh, in consideration for the rebuild or rezone of the Houghton Transfer Station. So, uh, Jeremy, what do you know? What, do, what does this do to that? Uh, I, I, process? Was I that mentioned at all? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I don't think it takes it off the table. I think the city uh, manager's office has reached out to the county that if it if that were to proceed as um, an option or the best option, then we would still be that that would still be on the table. So I don't think that would take it off the table as an alternate site for their CEPA analysis. John, John, Kristen, I'm I'm so glad you brought that up. I was. <coughs> Um, wondering the same thing because in addition, Jeremy, to the things that you mentioned before, uh, we had discussed in conjunction with the redevelopment, the potential redevelopment of the transfer station at its current location, um, some sort of parking and mitigation to better utilize the park, something like that. So I guess the question in my mind would be to staff since our theoretical last meeting is a month from tonight um, and our current purview is making- no, Two months. What's that? Two months. Two. Oh, well, we have- May and June. Oh, May and June, two months. Thank you. I'm still in a fog, I guess. <laughs> um, it, prior to formal public hearings and formal presentations, would the Houghton Community Council be out of line in making some recommendations with regards to their thoughts on uh, transfer station redevelopment in our area? Um, my brain was focused on a Houghton Park and Ride question there, which I don't think you asked. I think you're asking about the transfer station. Well, in connection with, simply because at one point, Jeremy, we looped in the park and ride area for uh, mitigation space, for parking, for access to the park and that sort of thing, if the transfer station was developed where it was. So by association, I connect that, sorry. Yeah, I see the nexus. Um, there, there's certainly nothing to preclude you from doing so. Um, I as staff would have a hard time giving you much guidance on that because it, it's still, we still have not seen 
um, the SEPA information, all the things that we're waiting for just to kind of start that process. So how do you evaluate these final three sites against each other? So like there's still SEPA and there's still this, this future land use permit um, for the facility that we don't have a lot to go on at this point, but none of that preclude you from if the council as a whole has guidance advice for the city council from offering that. I think it would be a series of um, educated guesses and assumptions and if thens. And I don't know, back to you, Rick, in terms of our council, is that something that in the closing phases of our life, if that's something that we should advise to help for the betterment of our community. It certainly is. I, 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 John, I don't know. I, I don't know the, how the, how the process is going to work. And there, as you know, there's limited, uh, we have limited authority as does the city over the darn thing, unfortunately. But yeah, well, but we have recommendation authority. We can, we can. If we have the information to make a recommendation, I, I weren't they re rebooting the process to reconsider some of the other sites? It's boy, it's been a while since I've heard an update on that. Um, I think what we had asked for was what the city had asked for. It's what the community asked for also. What on, on what criteria did you evaluate these sites and what right. did you just take a, a site off and add another site at that point in the SEPA process? And so I think we're still waiting for that information, but the, I don't think the county's even started the scoping process for SEPA yet. So yeah. once that scoping process um, commences, then we look at that and say, here's what we think you should study in the environmental impact statement. Um, what the key factor should be so my, my my concern is just that we have incomplete information to be making any recommendation on the last public meeting that i'm aware of from king county was in august of last year and they were discussing a second woodenville site and basically said one of these two woodenville sites and the two kirkland sites would be the ones moved for moving forward and I've continued to check on their website and other type of stuff, and there's really no new information that's been published there. I think uh, Phil uh, Allen, I think that's his name, uh, had provided some additional information after the fact, on uh, both in materials uh, to us several months ago uh, out there, but. Uh, just on the process of their selection selection process, but. Kristen, you've got your hand up. Well, I had two things. One is I believe the next siting advisory group meeting is in May. If that takes place, that's the public is welcome to join. We may have some additional comments from the community. Good. That would enable uh, a further discussion or recommendation from this council. Okay. So there's not a date published, but that's my understanding is that would happen in May. Okay. Uh, and then uh, I did see a hand up. Could you Kenneth. make sure and alert us when that is, just so we know? So absolutely, I will. Yeah, when I know, you'll know. Okay. Uh, I did see a hand up from someone in the audience. I know that the time period for public commentary has passed, but uh, I just wanted to call that out. Looks like yeah. hand has been lowered. Yeah. So uh, 
they they can but that person can certainly email Houghton Community Council with their information and we'll we we will will certainly pay attention to it. Is there any interest uh, on the council of other people to even if it is some if then some suggestions to the city council about this? On on the park and ride site? On, on the, the two sites in our purview area. I mean, you know, Ruth, Betsy, Kristen, Larry, you guys, do you think it's worthwhile that we make some recommendations based on possibilities? I think it could be worthwhile. I know that it is uh, an important topic to our community, directly impacts Houghton, or could directly impact Houghton. Um, I'd like to see a deciding advisory group meeting happens in May because I do think that will give this, this community a much more uh, directed path as to whether or not it is still two Houghton sites and Woodenville or maybe just two Houghton sites. I mean, we, we don't know at this point, but yeah, I think it could be, I think it could be worth it. And I would be willing to put my time into that. I think it's just as important regardless of the Houghton transfer station of trying to understand the public benefit if the city moves forward with the park and ride lot purchase in any case of how it fits in with all the goals and stuff that we've seen, whether it's affordable housing, TOD, other types of stuff out there to keep that in mind and not just focus solely on the Houghton transfer station um, potential mitigation strategies or other types of things, uh, because that is a gateway to a good part of our community. Yeah, I'm not averse to giving recommendations. <clears throat> I guess I kind of feel like, <clears throat> as Rick said and Jeremy said, <clears throat> we don't really have any we don't really have any jurisdiction. There's not much we can do. I don't know exactly. I mean, would we be talking about design of the building or traffic or, I mean, what exactly are, are you thinking, John? <clears throat> I know. Just, we don't want to see it. If I can butt in, um, I think we <laughs> okay. lost Rick. So oh, okay. you're in charge. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, let me answer Betsy's question. Thank you. If uh, we can look for Rick to jump back on. Um, in my mind, we have discussed uh, some if-thens in previously, and I think it would be a good idea uh, maybe just to bring forward as a collection from our council, a uh, collection of our council from what we gathered from our years of experience and understanding these properties in Houghton's. Of the, these are some things that just to remind the city council when they're reviewing all of this, these are things that were very important to the community should this move forward in the community. And here's a list, we've compiled it for you. It could be that simple. It could be a bit about traffic, it could be about schools, it could be about, <coughs> could be, I, I, I don't know, but it just seems to be as an advisory role as part of our council's purview, um, there's a lot of brain trust if we sat down and thought about 
the dump and its location that we could forward to the city council. You're on mute, Betsy. I'm just trying to remember if our minutes <clears throat> from any of those meetings or hearings were, were detailed enough about what people had said and suggested if we could maybe find that um, information. <clears throat> find a lot of it already so we don't have to reconstruct it. <laughs> my, my notes are pretty detailed. Good. Um, I think mine are too. I usually keep pretty good notes, but I don't even remember when that was. So I don't know how I would, I'd have to go back and look for it. Well, I think um, if this is something that we want to do, I think we could get a concerted effort of pulling that information. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, we also have uh, several emails and uh, written correspondence on it, uh, and I know in my I've just got a folder on, on my city account with that information with those in there. Right, we've got a ton of emails. That's where we control for that information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know Rick uh, sent me an email. He's restarting his computer, and he'll log back in here in a minute. So he's got a his computer accidentally. Well, uh, and so so since I would say that we all got the same emails on the people that were living around the transfer station and if it, so probably instead of seven of us trolling our emails i does does <clears throat> larry if you already have a folder with all of those do you <clears throat> do you want to just maybe i can start there uh start there maybe compile a bullet list or something like that and then we can look at that and and just say yeah we, we you know, that would give us a starting point, maybe. I know yeah, you Well, we can start looking at through that. And I'm, I know others have, uh, John and I were kind of our subcommittee kind of tracking that before it kind of went on hold. Uh, so we've attended, I attended several of the SAG meetings as well. So uh, a lot of commentary on at that as well. And I think that was before some, uh, then we had a new member that was finally added from Bridal Trails just near near the end of before it's kind of went on hold. Uh, so yeah, right. there's a lot of information out there. Yeah, I think there yeah, is. I, I would certainly um, like to suggest that uh, with my workload and other things going on, Larry, if you and Kristen want to carry that ball, I'm available for whatever. But if, if Kristen, that's something that you'd like to jump in on with Larry, that might make sense as a subcommittee. Yes. You're nodding your head, does that mean yes? Yes. Yes. Okay, all right. Um, so then, then we have the, just to make sure my date is right, on the, the 9th, Monday the 9th, is a, I wrote down as a joint planning commission on community council hearing, oh, that's La Quinta. Oh. Well, uh, what, oh, Kristen, you were going to get back when this was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, there was, uh, the, yeah, the Monday, May 9th at 5.30 is the town hall on La Quinta. Then the 26th of May would be the joint hearing with, on automated delivery systems, APDDs, and then there may be a SAG meeting on the Houghton Transfer 
uh, station siting process uh, in May to be determined. We have a, you received an email from Phil Allen with those dates of, um, on the website, it's the 19th with a public info meeting on May 12th is what Phil says. And he sends you the link to that. If you're tracking the county process. On May 19th is the SAG meeting. Thank you. But you're the next meeting of the community council to discuss this would be a regular meeting in May. That's right. And then we have the last meeting will be in June. Right. right. So May 23rd, uh, we'll follow the May 19th SAG meeting. Right. Okay. Perfect. Are we all on board with that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'm looking to see Rick is still not on yet. Jeremy, is there anything else on our agenda? Uh, that's everything for me. Okay. Um, does anybody else have any closing comments? Motion to adjourn. Okay, I motion to adjourn. Is there a second? Second. All right, I think we're all concluded then. So motion. Uh, all in favor say aye. 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 All righty, meeting is over. I will alert the chair. Oh, there he is. He's back. He's back on just in time to say goodbye. Rick, you there? Hi, Rick. Good night, all. Good night. Good night, Gracie. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you, John. Go to bed, man. <laughs>